VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, November the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a shout, get in the queue, and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So, all quiet on the NHL scoreboard front regarding the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians participating. Both Mercer and Newhook played last night. Nothing to report. But, you know, I know we're well into the NHL season, halfway through the NFL season, heading into the playoffs in the CFL, but Major League Baseball just winding up their awards portion of the season. So over the weekend, they gave out the Gold Glove Awards. For the first time in Toronto Blue Jay history, three Blue Jays won a Gold Glove. Third baseman, Matt Chapman, had another great season. That's his fourth career Gold Glove. He led all uh, American League third basemen with 12 defensive runs saved in 2023. His career total is now 92. So no other, and it, no other American League third baseman is even close on that number. Behind his 92 is someone with 19. Amazing stuff. Jose Barrios, first gold glover for him. He had a nice bounce-back season. He had a 365 ERA over 32 starts. Played really great defensively. Consequently, gold glove for him. And, of course, Kevin Kiermaier, center fielder. He's a beauty. At 33 years of age, he can still glide out there. So he's got his fourth career goal glover. He led all center fielders with 18 defensive runs saved and 13 outs above average. He's the fifth Blue Jays outfielder to win a goal glove award. The others are, of course, Vernon Wells, Sean Green, Devo Devon White, and Jesse Barfield. So congratulations. Also, the finalists for the individual awards, MVP, Rookie of the Year, and the Cy Young are also out. Toronto Blue Jays ace Kevin Gosman is a finalist for the Cy Young in the American League. And the organizers of the 2025 Canada Summer Games come to St. John's and surrounding area. They're looking for you to share your stories, which I think is pretty cool. You know, for me, when we were children and some of the organizing was happening, one of my schoolmates and one of my best buddies, Nick Vinicom, his father, Noel, the late Noel Vinicom, was on the organizing committee. I'll always remember that little purple or maroon kit bag that Nikki had growing up. So that's one thing that sticks out in my mind. And of course, one of the stars of the games is gold medalist in the 200-meter butterfly. That was Blair Tucker. So that was on August 16th in 1977. On August 16th, Elvis Presley died. But for the Tucker family, it's about his gold medal, the only one that we won at that particular games. So gold medal for Blair Tucker. He just recently came back to watch his daughter wrap up her swim career at Memorial University. It's the first meet that he saw at the Aquarina since he won the gold in 1977. So if you want to share your stories, please do exactly that. Oh, and yeah, Terry Fox made his first visit to St. John's for the 77 Canada Games to participate in wheelchair basketball. Spoke to Jacob Taylor yesterday on the program. He's one of the dart players uh, participating in the Rock Solid Dart Tour. You know, had a big victory against Darren Webster out in Cornerbrook. Does anybody know what happened last night in Marystown? I can't find it. So he had a chance last night to play the 19th-ranked dart player in the world, Andrew Gilding, from the UK. So if anyone's got any results from the Marystown uh, event, let me know. And also for dart enthusiasts, tonight at the Capitol Hotel in St. John's, and tomorrow night, same thing, if you're so inclined. All right, let's keep going. As we head into the winter, lots to discuss regarding how we heat our homes, and I'm up for every angle. This is just a helpful reminder uh, for folks who are eligible for the Home Heat Supplement Program. 
So the deadline is coming. It's not very quick, but it's November 30th. So if you are eligible, please do apply for the monies. It ranges between $200 and $500. For the adjusted family income for 2022 was $150,000 or less. You have to have uh, incurred direct costs to purchase a furnace or stove oil to heat your home. So what you need? You need a copy of your invoice for the purchase of furnace or stove oil, which should include the, deli- the, the delivery address. You need to sign the application. Many people had theirs rejected because they didn't sign it last go-around. You have to double-check that the social insurance number provided is correct. And you, if you're eligible, please do indeed do that. If you need more information, the email address is a simple one. It's oilsupplement at gov. Dot nl dot ca, or you can simply call them toll-free, 1-844-729-4645. We'll keep that info on hand for you. So Sometimes there's a lot of pearl clutching going on, right? And yes, there's inappropriate behaviors that we've seen in whether it be council chambers across the country, legislatures, and yes, in the House of Commons. It's remarkable to me just how many emails I've had in the last two days regarding Liberal member for Avalon, Ken McDonald. So, of course, we know he voted against the party on the carbon tax-related matter not so long ago, applauded across the country for people who are thinking and worrying and talking about carbon tax. Then there was a motion on Monday brought forward by the Conservatives to say that the carbon tax should be axed, period. Okay. So, Mr. McDonald, when his name was called, you know, he got some barbs from the other side. You're flip-flopping again, Ken, and all the rest of it. And he went up with the two fingers to scratch his head. Now, for anyone who's tried to cloak giving someone the middle finger or flipping the bird, that's been a pretty widely understood move that people make, you know, so that it's not quite as obvious as it obviously is intended. So, he's being taken to task. And I tell you what, I've got 100 emails. Sometimes we talk about the biggest issues under the sun, might get a couple of responses, but this Ken McDonald finger business is getting some pretty serious uh, traction. Now, did he mean to do it? I can only offer my own personal opinion. Mr. McDonald says, of course, he did not, but I've seen people do that particular move to give the finger many times, so just my personal opinion, he did it. He was sick of being yapped at, and so that's how he fought back with the wry smile associated with it. Mr. McDonald will not be pleased with people who think that he did that, but it looked like it to me. And, you know, he, we'll see what the speaker, Greg Fergus, has to say about it in the near future. But anyway, and when we talk about the carbon tax carve-out on home heating fuels, it's absolutely fair ball to say that it is not fair across the country. Home heating oil is only used by 3% of the population. In Atlantic Canada, it's way more than that. We know it to be true. That's why people are saying it's a divisive piece of uh, policy. Beyond that, it's just bad politics, right? Plain and simple. And we can expand the conversation to what I think should be the case anyway, to haul the tax off home heating fuels no matter what, off home heating sources, period. Paying tax to heat your home, just, I don't get it. Anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's go. All right, in the world of housing. So the federal government, there's been a lot of frenzy and furious and fast-paced announcements, but I'm not really sure any level of government really truly gets the urgency regarding housing. So if we're told by the CMHC that there's going to have to be 3.5 million homes built by 2030 to accommodate the need, then some of these piecemeal uh, announcements are just not going to get us there. Plain and simple. So yesterday the federal government announced that they're freeing up some six parcels of land across the country that can see some 2,800 homes built. Okay. Therein, Crown Lands Corp., which is the Crown Corp. managing the federal properties, say that the 20% of those units must be affordable. What does affordable mean? Don't know. So even if this is a good idea, which it is, 
you know, where is the actual long-term cooperative, collaborative plan between municipalities, provinces, and federal government? We're just kind of coming at it from all different angles, and I don't know how cohesive any of it is, but one thing I do know, based on my remedial math skills, is that none of these announcements are going to get us anywhere near where we need to be. So yes, they're freeing up the land, and the, the, some of the parcels include here in this city of St. John's, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa. So the big question just remains, affordability, when we talk affordable homes, it's just a big catch-all, which doesn't really reflect the different types of needs that people have. And when we talk affordability, there is a huge gap between what might be deemed affordable in Edmonton versus Calgary versus Manitoba versus Quebec and Ontario, PEI, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Labrador. Like, what is it? What is the number? So, yeah, freeing up some land, good. Build as many homes as we possibly can, good. But I'm not so sure that we've really got a cohesive plan that's all-encompassing and is going to get us where we need to be. So the city of St. John's is looking at things like uh, opening up some parcels of land to accommodate building homes. Affordable, yes, what that number is, don't know. And it will include the tiny home. It was years ago that there was a community just outside of St. John's. There was lots of back and forth between a local couple and the, uh, the community about the want to build tiny homes, which was eventually rejected. Now, there is some zoning in the city of St. John's for them, but you have to believe with the pace with which you can build a tiny home and some of these problems, we'll get into the, uh, the timelines for, uh, for your conversation in a second, but tiny homes and modular homes and whatever is going to be part of it. It's got to be. I would imagine a tiny home looks extremely attractive to a lot of folks listening to the program this morning. So I read a story this morning with a, a fellow named Sean Hickey, who we've had on this program a couple of times. He's out in Stephenville. He has built some 12 tiny homes since 2018. And talk about affordability. Rent begins at $375 a month. The homes range in size from 192 square feet to just over 700 on lots that are 25 feet wide. They sit on foundations that some concerned people have is, you know, in some areas, some jurisdictions, the tiny homes have to be on trailers, but these are going to be permanent features. So the homes that he's built, they're on foundations, have paved driveways, storage sheds, solid grass, they're connected to the community sewer and electrical grid, full bathrooms, and they come in either one or two bedroom units. 375 for rent is pretty attractive number. Now, of course, it's not going to be suitable for everybody. Some families obviously will need more space than is afforded to them in a tiny home, but it's going to be part of it. And then you get into the timeline conversation, which is going to further complicate trying to hit these lofty housing targets. If you're a developer, and I don't mean large scale and this is your full-time job, let's say you've got a couple of parcels of land that you're interested in, you buy, then want to build a couple of homes, flip them over for your own profit. Fair enough. But when we know that you identify a piece of land, you go through the purchase process, you get into the engineering and design, and go through the permitting phase, it just takes too long. I mean, people, by the time they close a deal on a parcel of land, it could be three years before they do anything to build a house. So municipalities have got to open up some flexibility on this stuff. When we have accredited, understood, reputable developers, not all are, but most are, and people who are building these homes, there's got to be a way to get through this quicker. Because even if we're talking about hitting housing targets, if the bureaucracy and the timeline and the carry cost for developers is going to be two, three years after you buy a piece of land, it's just simply not good enough. You know, you can't throw caution to the wind and throw all the regulations aside because regulations are important. But there's no way to be able to justify a three-year gap or lag between buying a piece of land and putting some boots on the ground and hammers in hand. Anyway, you want to take it on. We can do it.
on that front. So we know the province is working towards establishing minimum standards in emergency shelters, which has to happen. There's people who are advocates for the folks who have now popped up in these tent encampments, whether it be on Confederation Hill or behind the Colonial Building. I mean, it, it's really quite a, a, a sight to behold, and it's happening across the country. But one of the advocates has asked me to put this out there for your consideration, and I will. Is the City of St. John's locks the bathrooms in Bannerman Park at 8 p.m.? The rationale behind it, they say, is when they leave them open throughout the course of the night, you know, whether it be discarded needles, damage, fires, whatever the case may be, because they're not monitored throughout the entirety of the night, some advocates are hoping that the city can open them so people can do the obvious, use the bathroom. Where do you come down on that? I mean, the issue regarding drug use and fire and damage is obviously real. I mean, we've seen it documented over the years. Even just the ability to put a porta potty there, Look, I get you should see some of the people reacting like to hell with these folks. They made their own decisions, they made their own lot in life. I'm not so sure how fair that is. And everyone's got a different story as to how, where, and why they ended up in a tent versus the mercy shelter or in prison uh, on purpose because they don't want to live in a shelter. I mean, the stories are horrendous. So, where do you come on, come down on that? Let's talk about inside the world of poverty reduction. It's a real crying shame that. Not that long ago, the poverty reduction uh, program and strategy in this province was the envy of the entire country. And lo and behold, the problem didn't go away, but the strategy went away. So now this afternoon, there's going to be a, an announcement regarding the province's new poverty reduction strategy. What's going to be included, we'll all find out. I believe it happens at 2 p.m. this afternoon. VOCM News will be there. But you wonder if it would be talks like expanding programs that we know are working and can keep people's head above water, wolf away from the door, maybe sheltered in their own home, right? Able to pay their bills. And much of that comes with the need to have to, a bloody job. So, inside the world of social assistance, some people will need the social safety net. Indisputable. But there's absolutely programs and policies we can put in place to move people away from social assistance so they can work and can advance up the hierarchy of wherever they're uh, employed and can see their... Uh, income increase over time served. So the employment stabilization plan looks like something that worked here in the pilot project here in this province, or pardon me, in this part of the province right here in St. John's and surrounding area, and only started at the beginning of the year. At the time, 170 people were applicants and participants in the employment stabilization plan. And before the end of the year, out of the 170, 40 no longer need social assistance. Why? Because there was an actual policy to incentivize them to get back in for retraining and to re-enter or for the first time enter the workforce. So they had job start allowance. Went from $125 to $250. Bucks. So if you had to buy steel toe boots or something, right? Or some newer clothes for your new job. And then there was incentives to participate in the job market and to continue working. The government gave them $250 after six months. They'll get $500 after a year and $1,000 after two years. Some people might say it's a shame we have to encourage people with money to be employed, but it's all part of that leg up business. This is good for everybody. I mean, the minimal price tag of those incentive dollars compared to the fact that they're no longer on social assistance, they will inevitably feel much better about themselves and their lot in life, they'll be working for themselves, and their earnings will increase. Now, we can have conversations inside of poverty reduction and minimum wage and all the rest of it, and universal basic income, whatever you want to take on, but that kind of stuff... Let's see that expand. Let's add to it. Let's try to deal more and more with things that find people in the need for emergency shelters in the reality of a tenth. I mean, let's just get at it. Building homes, of course we've got to do it. 
but let's see if we could just do more to keep people from that. Like if I had my druthers, there'd be no such thing as quitting school at 16. And you wouldn't be getting out of the pen unless you had your GED. You know, not to be harsh or to be hyperbolic, but let's just see what we can do, put our heads together and figure it out. All right, a couple of quickies before we get to you. So Premier David Eby of British Columbia and Premier Fuhrer yesterday signed a three-year partnership statement to cooperate on a bunch of issues, mental health and addictions and housing and green energy. First off, there's really no such thing as green energy. There's greener energy. We all know that to be true. There's a long way between wind and solar and hydro versus coal and include whatever source you'd like to talk about. But the way that the story is written and the way that the province talks is there's no reason to believe we're not all in on these onshore wind projects, right? So if you want to take it on. Also, on the Buren Peninsula yesterday, or last evening, there was a presentation regarding the potential for offshore wind. We've known for a long time they're working on the regulatory issues surrounding the potential for near-shore, offshore wind farms. Still remains to be seen where the market would be for the, for the power generated offshore. We do need to know more, because I mean, a lot of these things are just unknowns to us. We can look at other jurisdictions and see how it works. We can talk about research that's been done in the impact on marine life with offshore wind farms. I mean, don't bother listening to folks that tell you that the problem is the whales are going to jump into the swinging turbines. I mean, let's get back to the reality of what the research really shows. Because alternative forms of energy are going to be attractive. And in many cases, will be less expensive than some of the ways we power our vehicles and heat our homes. But the folks on the Bureau Peninsula displeased with what they heard and the dearth of details, and they compared it directly to Everwind, which is the company, the proponent on the Bureau Peninsula, to talk about onshore wind, hydrogen, ammonia, export power. So they gave Everwind thumbs up for the most part. There's always going to be people concerned. So I think I heard about Mary Keating and Mary Sound say 10 out of 10 for Everwind, a negative 10 for the discussion they had about offshore wind yesterday. I'll take it on. Uh, let's go. All right, how are we doing out there this morning, David? Just a quick scam call warning. If, you know, I'm happy enough when people share some of the information about what they are hearing on their own landline. If we can spare one person from getting rooked, we will. So apparently this number popped up on this lady's phone. 1-800-688-3558. And the recording says, This is Bell Canada. We're sorry to inform you we have cut off your internet and TV service. Press 1-4, press 2-4, da-da-da-da-da. The real red flag there is, if you're living in Atlantic Canada, you're going to get a call from Bell Aligned, not Bell Canada. So 99 times out of 100, those calls are scams. So if you get one saying this is Bell Canada, don't press 1 or 2, hang up. If there is a concern with your services, call them back directly yourself. And congratulations to the folks that share the harvest. They made a donation yesterday, 20 kilograms of moose, uh, minced moose meat. Uh, Connections for Seniors Food Bank in St. John's. That's going to feed upwards of a couple of hundred seniors. Congratulations, Barry Fordham and the crowd. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the show, which you can do right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I, I know you've got a lot of issues, different issues on the go, and this may not be the most important one, but I, I think it's a metaphor. This one here is a metaphor. When we talk about overseas flights, it's a metaphor of incompetence, dropping the ball, slipping the ball, not knowing how to kick the ball, uh, falling behind. Uh, and I'll explain that to you too, very, very, very quickly. Uh, what's the update? The Premier did mention 
mention in June that something happening. Well, I'll tell you what's happening in Halifax. That might be something of interest to people here. Halifax has got 34 destinations, got eight countries, and has got a flight to Germany, got a flight to London, England, and just uh, I just heard from a good friend of mine recently, they've got a new flight to Iceland. So there's, there's, the, there's the situation in Halifax. Yeah, just launched last week. Yeah. So what have we got here? Apparently, we've got 17 destinations, 17 destinations. We have absolutely no international flights across Europe. I think I, I'm going to lead the campaign to change the name of the airport, St. John's North American Airport. It's not an international airport. People shouldn't use the term. Please do not use the term international airport. You know, because I, it doesn't tell, you know, we're not an international, so I'm not quite sure, you know, how you feel about yourself, Harry. Well, I've long contended that, you know, it's a real hamper to not only business travel, but even for pleasure travel. And, you know, if we talk about tourism as a growth in- industry here, people make up their mind how and where to travel based on a variety of factors, but also including ease of access, right? So if you can't get it in and out of here easily, then it might be the sole reason why someone says, oh, you know, I'd love to see Western Brook Pond, but I'm not flying to Toronto to fly back to St. John's from London, England. So it's got a lot of implications. People will say, well, there's bigger uh, concerns that we should be sharing, but people's ease to get in and out of here is something that, you know, there's nothing quite like a shot in the arm for the economy than money from somewhere else. And so if that means that businesses will have more and more of their employees working here because it's easier enough to get from here to Svanger, Norway, or to London, or to Scotland, then we've got to try to do what we can do. We just got priced out. You know, the reason we lost our WestJet flight to Dublin is not because seat sales were down, because seat uh, sales were up every year, year over year. How did we lose it to Stanfield, which they consequently lost it themselves? They just made it more attractive financially for WestJet. The end. Absolutely. And where's our Minister of Tourism? Is he in Europe? No. In Japan. And then we're going to hear the usual excuses. There's no aircraft. There are no pilots. Uh, there's, There's no mechanics. There's regulations. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, we've got the battle gap all, all, all the time. And, uh, you know, uh, the European leaders are coming here for a meeting in a couple of weeks' time. Do you think they're going to be flying to Toronto or come back here? What do you think? Well, if they're flying commercial, they're going to have very little options beyond going to Halifax the, or the jet, Toronto. The people who have the jets, what I'm saying is there are people coming in here every other week on jets. You know, who've got the money and connected with government. I'd like to know what government ministers here in this province have been traveling on jets to Europe. I'm quite convinced of that. Yeah, well, even a private businessman has uh, uh, put forward a model to build hangar or hangars for private jets out at St. John's North America Airport, to use your term. I, I do know, in defense of the province, they ha- did indeed have a conversation with a German carrier. I believe it's called Condor. I don't know where that landed. The airport authority themselves, I get an update from them every now and then about efforts they're making to bring more routes, including overseas. You know, just think of the upside we would have if you had a direct flight to Heathrow or Gatwick or whatever the case wow. may be in London and went to Newark, New Jersey, which is a real hub of international travel. It would make a difference. It 100% would. Yeah, I mean, sure. 40 years ago, we had, we had flights from Preswick, London, Glasgow, you know, and we had, you know, from Dublin. You know, there's a, you know, and again, the tourism people, the destination people, they go silent because they can't bite the hand that feeds them. You know, not a member stands up in the house. I, I feel like alone in a sense that there's no champion other than yourself. I haven't ha- seen any organization, the Board of Trade run something, uh, you know, a, a, an in-house kind of thing, charge people 150 bucks to keep to keep people out, you know, to see what's going on. The battle gab, the excuses, I, I, I think people are, are fed up or if they're fed up or perhaps they don't care. 
to think that this is for an elite bunch, a bunch of people, uh, you know, uh, I feel strongly on it that, that the that the even the Irish any Irish organisations this province have gone asleep. Uh, you know, people don't care, uh, but I, I think you do, and I thought maybe it might be an idea to bring that to, to listeners. I'm happy to do exactly that, Michael. I'm glad you chimed in on it. We've talked about it, and you know what the reaction I get the vast majority of the time is people shrug their shoulders and say, well, airlines make a business decision. What the hell are we supposed to do? Well, I don't think that's how airport authorities around the country think. Well, you look at Halifax uh, compared with our uh, St. John's uh, North American airport, you know, and I think people should start using that. Start using that, make a campaign, you know, know, I'll take out a trademark if they want to, okay? It's interesting that you made mention of the Board of Trade because inside that world, if people want to call them elites or whatever, fairball, but those are the exact people that are really the ones fighting for and talking about air access, international routes. You know, for most people who, you know, traveling is so expensive, it's prohibitive for so many people that this is absolutely the least of their worries. But some of the things that might be an indirect benefit to them is if all of a sudden tourism grows, other business opportunities grow, you know, and then competition will mean a a potential uh, price point issue. So there does have widespread implications, even if you're not an international traveler, because many people aren't, but that's kind of neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I've never got a single call or a single letter from government or anyone, you know, really interested in this file at all. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath uh, either. But uh, I, I think it's a metaphor for incompetence, uh, people not being on the ball, uh, shrugging their shoulders. I think I like the way that you put it there, <laughs> shrugging the shoulders. Appreciate the time, Michael. Thanks Thank for you this. Thank you very much. Bye. You're welcome. All bye. right, bye-bye. And again, look, whatever issue you want to broach here on the, on the show, let's do it. No, Nothing's too big, nothing's too small, but I do think expanded air access, different routes, international, and I do think if we had one flight to Europe and one flight to Newark, New Jersey, that would go a long way. My own personal opinion. You can share yours here on the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, line number four. I'll put her on hold. Hello. Uh, Good morning. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, I'm calling regarding the St. John's, uh, the discontinuation of the water tax. Water tax exemption for uh, property owners was to a subsidiary apartment, uh, apartment or to apartment home. Um, I, uh, I had received a letter on October 12th indicating that our uh, water tax exemption was discontinued. And, uh, but they sent a brochure along with it for uh, steps to re, uh, to revert your apartment to a one-apartment home. It was quite costly, and uh, it seems very unfair to people who have had previously owned a two-apartment home and don't rent the house currently. I've had a couple of calls on this particular issue. The city says that the uh, exemption that has gone away is based on legislation. But just because that's the way it is in legislation doesn't mean we can't amend it because this seems patently unfair. If someone can document the fact that their rental unit, generally speaking their basement apartment, is not rented, is not on the market, is not inhabited, simply had a water connection and a range cable for a stove, then if we can prove that no one's in it, then I would think we can amend legislation to accommodate these exemptions that were in place for years. Well, 700 residents, from what I understand, That's were affected right. by, by this uh, change in policy. And there was a time that you could uh, apply to have to indicate your home is no longer being used as an apartment. And uh, you would 
not have to pay the second water tax. Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't even aware of the way maybe the water tax is on their property tax bill. And it seems as though it's it's a standard bill for every household, no matter of the size of the household. And if you have, uh, you know, two people living in the house or ten people in the house, it's uh, the water tax is the same. Now the water tax is applied uh, not based on consumption because that would require a meter at mm-hmm. each person's home, which I totally understand would be very costly for the city. But I don't believe it's being applied fairly right now because uh, you know there's lots of homes in the city that only have you know uh, like my our own our circumstances changed over the years and we took over our apartment and we use it just ourselves but there are people who are renting uh, you know rooms in their homes there's people who are uh, you know taking in uh, borders they are only paying a single tax on and and yet the consumption is far greater so I feel like uh, targeting this uh, this new uh, uh, option for us to uh, stop paying I think it's uh, $670 everybody pays for a single dwelling if you have a two apartment you would pay double that on the water tax so the water tax right now is uh, it's really it's has nothing to do with the size of your home it, it's just applied to a place that is supposed has that second as far as I can understand uh, if it has a range cabling going into the home, city council is now asking you to remove this range ca- cable, which requires applying for permits, hiring an electrician, taking away the option that your apartment, uh, that your home right now has to be uh, a two-apartment home. Now, although we took over our home, I mean, it's quite possible in the future with prices and things that uh, we would maybe want to rent our apartment again. But once we remove that range cable, it's putting you into a, a very costly situation of electricians. You know, it would cost thousands of dollars to revert this back. And I think right now that the option that the city is providing for people to revert to uh, in order to avoid paying a second water tax when we're not renting the apartment, uh, I feel like the uh, the options are not, you know, we're going to go up 20 it it amounts to about 22% of our property tax bill will increase with this second water tax that we're expected to pay. Right, and you only get three months' notice. There's some confusion out there about the uh, removal or disconnecting the range cable. I've heard it from two different people, two different strategies, sir. One says you have to remove it in full. The other told me, and this is from the city, that you simply have to disconnect it from the panel, which is a far less costly issue. Even when you convert from, say, you know, to uh, avoid paying a double water tax and you do all that they're asking and there's uh, access and egress and the range cable and all the rest of it you've now devalued your property so they're hitting you from both sides here you know it's either accommodate the doubling water tax spend money on an electrician and a carpenter and devalue your property or suck it up and pay twice the water tax so it seems patently unfair and i know that their hand was forced based on legislation but that doesn't make it right we should be able to accommodate an exemption if it can be proven and documented because the way it used to be if you were given the exemption and then they found out that you had lied and the place was being rented, they would retrocharge you all the way back to whatever when you start to apply for the exemption. So there was penalties already in place. So we've got to figure this one out. You're 100% right. And the number is 700 people are facing the exact same circumstance. 
Well, one of the problems, too, is the city, and, and I've had, you know, three emails going back and forth with the city, but they have never totally explained it. They just say that uh, legally they cannot provide it any longer. But there is no real explanation in the letter that we received. And I really feel, too, you know, when you really look at the water tax, it is unfair because you could have a pool in your backyard or a hot tub. You can have any other number of things that would be taking up greater amount of water than just because you have a two-apartment home. And in many cases, well, right now, I think they're they're going under the assumption that people are lying about it. And uh, we were never asked if we are renting our home. Nobody ever came by and asked us. And I think right now, the logic of City Hall is that they're trying to be fair to all citizens. There's a lot of unfairness when it comes to the water tax and I think it's time that well I, I don't believe this is fair to us but I also think it's time for them to revisit how they apply the water tax and the water tax really needs to be applied in a, a more equitable way for the citizens of St. John. You're right I mean someone could have a 5,000 square foot home six people living yes. in it and a hot tub and a swimming pool and uh, a, a couple of neighborhoods over there's a single senior living by themselves in a 1,200 square foot bungalow paying the same water right. tax. You're right exactly. this information is for from a friend of mine who is uh, uh, in the apartment business, he, she, pardon me, he says, you do not need to remove the electric rain receptacle. It simply needs to be disconnected. So there's a long way between uh, full removal and simply disconnecting from the panel. And I'll, I'll confirm that with the city because I've heard it two different ways. And mm-hmm. confusion is not helpful when you're frustrated. Uh, I appreciate the call this morning. Would you like yep. to say anything else quickly? Uh, no, I I'm, appreciate you bringing this to light. I know it doesn't affect uh, a lot of the city, but uh, a lot of people don't pay attention to how the water tax works in any case. So it, it might open it up to some other options as well. 100%. I appreciate the time. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's, we've had a couple of calls on it. And 700 is not an insignificant number. And even the broader conversation of how water tax is applied. Now, I will say, to entertain water metering will come with a significant cost. And the city's not going to pay for it because the city doesn't have any money. We'll all pay for it, whether it be an increase in the property tax or an increase in the uh, water tax that's already in place. But I totally get her point. She's 100% right. Let's take a break. When we come back, search and rescue. We'll talk about housing out in Clarenville. Mike wants to talk about some issues at the airport. Shane's in the queue to talk health care. Whatever you want to talk about right after this. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Where would you like me to go, David? Line number three? Fine, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Mike. On line number three, you are on the air. Okay, good morning. Good morning to you. How are you doing this morning? Doing fine, thank you. How about yourself? I'm right up on the top shelf with you. Got a boy? Yeah. Uh, I got two issues I'd like to bring up. First of all, that first caller this morning jumped right in with the uh, international airport, so-called. I uh, go there quite often, and I find it absolutely terrible that a so-called international airport after 6 o'clock in the evening has absolutely nowhere for anybody to sit down and have a coffee while you're waiting for your flights to come in, uh, somewhere where somebody can have a beer or a drink before they get their flights to leave uh, the 
travel outside the province uh, late in the evening. Uh, there's a sign out there by Tim Horton saying open 24 hours, but they close 6 o'clock sharp, and there's absolutely nowhere for to sit down and have a coffee or anything at a so-called international airport. I think it's terrible. Mike, is the downstairs Tim Horton also closed after 6? Pardon? Is the downstairs Tim Horton's also closed, or is it simply the one up in the uh, through security? Uh, the one downstairs on the main floor, it closes 6 o'clock sharp, and they still got the sign up on the wall, oh, Tim Horton's open 24 hours. You, you go through uh, security, and you're up waiting to get a flight. you got access to uh, something. But people who are waiting for their uh, relatives and friends, international travellers, to come from outside Newfoundland to get here to Newfoundland, they get off the plane and there's nothing. You've got to drive up the road to that uh, gas station where Tim Horton says to go get a coffee. It's terrible. Yeah, and I wasn't aware that everything was closed up in full come 6 o'clock. When I travel, I tried not to do it in the evening. I'm much more yes. inclined to travel in the morning. But uh, okay. I, I didn't know, but you're absolutely right. We It's about time we get the airport authority on because that's a couple of travel-related concerns voiced this morning. So I let's see tourism, what we can find. Everything. Yeah, sure. Understood. Point taken. Uh, the uh, 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 and, and, I mean, the, uh, they're after spending millions of dollars to upgrade that airport. Everybody says, oh, look at that wonderful airport. It's grand now. It's absolutely fantastic. But it's not, a, not a darn place to go. Sit down and have a drink or a beer or a coffee while you're waiting for the travel or your guests to, to come and arrive. Uh, my second issue has okay. to do with the Avalon Mall. Okay. Uh, I am a senior citizen, and there are thousands of senior citizens who like to go to the Avalon Mall to do their shopping. It's after expanding that much in the past number of years that it's absolutely uh, a, a jungle there. Uh, senior citizens with uh, walking disabilities, hip, uh, hip replacements, arthritis, and God knows what, they are at wit's end to go in there and try and do their shopping and travel around all those facilities that are at their beckoning call. I've seen malls outside uh, Newfoundland where there's carts available. A senior citizen can go in, they can get a cart, and they can get on this cart, and they can take all day to drive around the, the malls to get to the different stores. They might want to do their shopping and that. Uh, uh, the entrances at the mall are all over the place. Sometimes you go in, you have to go halfway across the mall to go to customer service to get a wheelchair for somebody who needs it. Then you got to show your driver's license and everything else. you got to sign out everything. Then you got to go halfway across the mall again with an empty wheelchair so you can put somebody in it and help them do their shopping. Uh, I think there's somebody should do some f- uh, uh, fundraising to uh, raise uh, uh, money to get a number of carts and make them available uh, to the senior shoppers and other people with disabilities for getting around mobile uh, to get around and and get at the mall and do their shopping. Uh, I think it's terrible. That's another thing I think that uh, nobody ever looks about at or thinks about. Yeah, I see them at grocery stores and at Walmarts and the like. Uh, And fair enough, you're never going to see it come to a point where people aren't going to have to show identification and sign them out because obviously if it's a free-for-all on that front, then they'll be very quickly in the back of a truck out by the door 
uh, and gone somewhere else. But I get your point. So, yes. you know, even if it was a private operation for profit and had it, you know, had a deal with Crombie, who are the mall managers, owners, and developers, but that mall has expanded a great deal. You're absolutely right there. Mike, two good ones this morning. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you very much. Even if somebody had the carts there and you could rent them uh, f uh, for half a day or whatever for a small amount of money, uh, it's better than what's there now. Understood. Thanks for making time okay. for the show. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. See you, Mike. All right, uh, break time, Dave. Now, Merv, you stay right there talk some search and rescue because, of course, that's a massive issue in the province, especially in Labrador. I'm not sure where Merv wants to go with it this morning. And, Greg, also appreciate your patience. Talk about housing out in Clarenville. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Merv, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, yeah, I just hauled off on the TCH here on the way to North River. <clears throat> it's um, I'm nauseous all morning, but uh, I'm not seeing any snow, no flies. So against that backdrop, I'm saying it's a great day. It's funny. I think one of my buddies, when it starts to get cold, he says, $1,000 for a mosquito bite. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to put search and rescue back on the radar again, if I could. Sure. Um, CNL, uh, last week, last Friday, actually uh, issued a release on this uh, item. It has to do with uh, search and rescue coverage here in the province, Newfoundland, the Labrador. Um, and uh, it has to do... Primarily, uh, specifically, I guess, with uh, the offshore component of coverage. And just to explain just a little small bit here, um, there are really two components, there are many components, of course, to start coverage, but two essential components, and that's inshore, offshore. Inshore, we are in pretty good shape, notwithstanding, of course, the deficiency that's in Labrador with lifeboat stations. But we have uh, seven lifeboat stations here around the island portion of the province. Um, during the navigation season most of the year in most locations and of course during the summer we have inshore rescue base uh, programs so on and so forth uh, these inshore rescue bases of course and the endurance of the the lifeboats is about 120 nautical miles offshore and uh, so obviously there's a, a gap that's left after that uh, the, the standard that's been applied forever that I'm aware of and since from my experience with search and rescue is that we've broken up the province, around the province, in five different areas and uh, for offshore purposes. And we also have outside the 200-mile limit, which we have international obligations for as well. So we patrol for that. So these uh, patrol vessels beyond the 120 nautical miles really is served by large, much larger, multi-purpose vessels. So we came to learn, CNL that is, came to learn, that there was only one uh, search and rescue patrol vessel on primary search and rescue, one half an hour standby posture. Uh, that was the ANRV just lying south of, uh, of uh, Fogo Island last Friday. And apparently this has been going on for quite some time. So all of the other key areas that's been broken down is, is to add that deficiency and the, and the lack of a patrol. Uh, Patty, that, that's a very uh, a serious indictment of our ability to be able to respond to search and rescue. Um, now, there has been times in the past where you may get one of these areas that, you know, you risk management, if you if you will. You risk management to the point that uh, there may be other vessels in the area, maybe government vessels, Coast Guard vessels, or 
otherwise. And in this case, uh, it's been it was noted uh, from the assistant uh, commissioner's office that there are three or four science vessels that's operating in the area, but they're not on primary search and rescue. And the difference between primary, as you would know, and secondary is very far-reaching. It's night and day. Uh, essentially, uh, the primary standby posture one half an hour means that that's your job. That's what you're willing to do. So. Any vessel that's on that kind of a patrol uh, will not um, encumber their vessel to the point where they can't respond within that time frame. Other vessels, secondary vessels, for example, may be involved with science. They may have trawls out. It may take them quite a long time to respond, and there's no obligation to respond within that half an hour scope. So, uh, so this is uh, happening. Um, Quite often, you you will see the, the 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 region, the province go to other regions and borrow vessels uh, if they have shortcomings. If there happen to be vessels on maintenance or tied up in other means, I've I've seen the naval vessels being called into action to cover up these offshore areas. So now we have this great deficiency there. And it's not clear to us after our research and our inquiries as to whether or not this is the new normal to continue with this level of uh, risk management. But you know, it, it's a dangerous game, Patty. It's a very dangerous game of risk management. And, and I don't like it, and I don't think the public should should like it very well either. The distinct misunderstanding of search and rescue need and capacity in this province by the federal government is staggering. I mean, it long has been. I'll never forget one uh, member, Cheryl Gallant, saying that, you know, what's the big deal? You know, just look at how we uh, provide search and rescue in the Great Lakes. Excuse me? What? I mean, is, not understanding the issue just leads to these poor decisions. You know, then Defence Minister Anita Anand comes to town talk about money for our NORAD commitments and five-wing goose bay, but no money for search and rescue. And even, you know, go back to the Ocean Ranger Inquiry led by Judge Hickman, you know, 24-7 uh, base at St. John's. None of this has ever happened. So to me, that means... Doesn't necessarily mean we've just been ignored. I think there's just a distinct misunderstanding of the actual need. Oh, no question. Hey, look, I never forget the meeting I personally had with the uh, with the, the deputy commissioner of uh, the Canadian Coast Guard in Ottawa quite a long time ago when they were closing the Maritime Rescue Subcenter. I came home with all the facts and figures and rationale and the experience that I had, of course. And her first response is, "Hey, look, I have great empathy and great appreciation." for the need for, you know, Atlantic Canada and offshore Newfoundland and Labrador because I'm a, a big uh, kayak enthusiast. Oh, excuse me, you have an appreciation because you're, you know, it's it's the Sir, uh, Cheryl Gallant uh, syndrome all the way. And, yeah, you make, you make a good point. But, uh, look, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to continue. Uh, whether this uh, gets someone's goat, uh, if it bores someone to death or whatever, I'm going to continue as long as I'm alive to profile these situations in the hopes in the hopes that uh, we can hit off what could potentially be a disaster we need to be there and have the ability uh, to respond to to these kinds of incidents and if we let our guard down it's no good for me to get onto your on your program uh, you know, after something serious happens and talk about what could have, what should have, and everything else, now is the time to do it. And excuse me, but here I am again. We've got a problem. Someone needs to fix it. Fair enough. And, you know, we can and should be talking about this because we're talking about saving lives, and there's, that's the government's responsibility. I will add to it, and it's curious uh, because I spoke with Ryan yesterday regarding CNL closing up shot as a professional organization trying to evaluate the potential to be a for-profit cooperative. Then you add in personal responsibility. 
when you add things like, you know, because once again, we're talking about saving lives. I, it's easy enough for me to want to spend other people's money. But it's maybe time for a conversation surrounding mandatory EPIRBs, emergency position indicating radio beacons, because knowing where you are gives us a better chance to save your life. So when I, the curious link I was making is the Labrador Shrimp Company. This is on the heels of the two lads lost in the Mary's Harbor. Immediately, they put it on all the wrestles. Well, as of last September, they had it on at least 100. So I think they probably completed the entire roster. I, again, it's not my money. But I would think when we talk about personal safety and survival suits and all the other tools that we try to keep people as safe as possible, a beacon on board makes all the sense in the world to me. No, absolutely. A good point. And look, there's a lot of leadership shown by the Labrador Shrimp Company. Uh, you know, I'm involved with Nuna Sulevit and some of the work that they're doing. There's a significant pilot project happening now in Cartwright. I think that'll, you know, that I will leave it to the people in charge uh, with uh, of that pilot project to, to talk about uh, safety kits and so on and so forth. So that'll be, we'll hear more about that in the future. But an awful lot of leadership that really should be shown by the safety association we have here in the, in the province. Um, and of course, I have very little communications with them because they have excommunicated me, if you will, because of my mouth, I guess, and some of the things that uh, that I'm saying, which happens to be true. Anyway, that's another story that we can talk about sometime. But, you know, I, I got to go back again and in my final remarks on this issue of offshore coverage. Uh, we may not see it when we look out the window every day, and it may not be fishing vessel safety. In a lot of cases, it is. But I'm telling you, there are, there are literally hundreds of transatlantic vessels uh, crossing uh, to the south of Cape Race under great circle routes from North America to Europe, everything from bulk carriers to, to tankers, super tankers, uh, freighters, uh, you, you name it, Patty. It's, it, it's happening as we speak. Uh, you know, 15, 20 miles off Cape Race, 100 miles off Cape – this is all happening. Just to name one type of vessels, we have an international obligation by treaty. Uh, to to be ready and to be able to respond, not just to be able to you know to pick up uh, uh, people from the water and so on, but to be able to manage one of these vessels that might break down and and uh, get it under tow and the whole range of things that only the capabilities of an offshore vessel can do. And yet here we are, uh, you know, experiencing this void that looks to be very long term. I'm surprised the search and rescue region, the commander of the search and rescue region in Halifax, would allow it to happen. In my experience, uh, you know, all hell would break loose, and here we are, not a whimper, not a sign. So I rest my case. Appreciate the time, Murph. Thanks for this. Court adjourned. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Yeah. I mean, even the issue up in Labrador. And I know Yvonne Jones has broached, of course, the Liberal Member of Parliament for Labrador, and I'm sure she would love nothing more than see search and rescue investment, not even a fast rescue uh, lifecraft in Labrador. None. I know that uh, some folks have done yeoman's work to try to expand ground search and rescue capacity and capabilities in Labrador, which is very, very good news. Then you harken back to some of the gray areas with where provincial responsibility began and ended and then re was taken over by federal responsibility. So, I mean, some of that, of course, lo lessons learned the hardest way possible, and that would be regarding Burton Winters. So a lot of discussion about search and rescue is absolutely worthwhile. How are we doing out there, David? Let's take a break for the news on time. When we come back, still plenty of time to discuss whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM.
Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Shane. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello there. Shane here. I just uh, I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago about my uncle who had a cardiac arrest and was in the hospital trying to get neurology to come look at him and all that. Yeah, that's right. I remember I tried to put you on to the uh, chief of staff. Yes, and, and we did get uh, quite a amount of help, and neurology did eventually come in, and, and he's gotten the help he's needed. He's been doing some physio in the CCU unit. But the reason I'm calling now is uh, it's it's involving the same issue, but I, I don't know how to put this yet because there's no real liability. There's a liability shield in place. You've got your front row workers, your nurses, and your doctors, but to escalate past that, there's nobody in the public eye. So nobody really knows. You've got to start asking and emailing and you can't really escalate. So I don't know where the blame lies here, but this man who's now doing minimal physio with the nurses on that floor has had two falls where he's face planted and is now back under sedation with a breathing tube because of his falls. His falls occurred while he's being monitored by people, and his falls occurred while there was only one person there trying to move him when they need two. Okay, so this was when he was getting some physio or something, just so I understand what's yeah, happening? Well, he has to be transferred from his bed to his chair, and then during the chair they do some minimal physio, and then they try standing him up with aid, with, with one of the things that hangs from the ceiling, and do some other minimal physio. But there's always got to be obviously more than one person there with him, or else he'll fall. He's a grown man. And so your comment that, you know, beyond the nurses and doctors and attendants on the floor, that the next wave or the next level of uh, management and what have you are not available or? Well, they're not they're not open to the public eye. They're not you know, you don't, it's not like you're in a, a store where you can ta say, hey, get me your manager. The managers in healthcare don't really work on the front lines. They're in offices somewhere and they don't really come out to talk to you. So trying to figure out why he's falling twice, because why is there only one person or why is he rolling out of a bed when he should have the guardrails up? He's clearly able to move. He shouldn't be in a bed unattended with no guardrails up, but you can't escalate. That. Who do you escalate that to? Who do you go to? Can I see your manager? Well, who's the manager? Well, like many departments, uh, not only in health community services, the management and the senior bureaucrats are, for the most part, nameless and faceless. And they're the folks who are the real gatekeepers of information and authority, and we never get to speak with them. You know, and there's really very little sense in saying that this is a question for the minister responsible, because... Ministers aren't day-to-day -day operators inside of healthcare in particular, so fair ball. I understand where you're coming from. It's easy enough for me to say to someone, look, I can try to put you on to the chief of the department, which we've had some success, and it's easy enough for me to say, well, email client relations. That's where you lodge a formal complaint, but that's an after the fact. That's after the man has fallen twice and face-planted. That's after he's rolled out of his bed. Pretty fundamental to haul up a guardrail. I'm not sure why that would be the case. Yeah, and I mean, there's just, there's just an obvious disconnect between the frontline workers. And this is my problem because I can't, I mean, obviously the guardrail should be up and, and it should be, somebody should have done that. But I mean, I don't know who's responsible for what. I, I don't feel like lashing out at anyone and getting mad at them and telling them, why didn't you do this? Because I don't know whose ultimate responsibility it is. And I don't really feel like being upset with somebody who's working a 12-hour shift, already stressed out, already overworked, already underpaid. 
so on and so forth. So it's just, I'm just trying to bring it to the public and have people maybe hear it from the public and, and, and or from people who are going through it. Because, I mean, his recovery has been robbed. He's back to before ground zero. He's back to being sedated. He's got a breathing tube back in. He's got, they're going to have to put another tracheotomy back in. Um, he's, he's gone back to, to square one. And it's all because he fell twice and hit his face. I do appreciate the message you included there that, you know, coming after or going after the frontline staff who are obviously overwhelmed for the most part is not really finding any any solutions because if there's only one attendant available for whatever the case may be, then there's going to be, you know, no answers coming from them. They're not in charge of staffing, right? They're yeah, not in charge absolutely. of how the staff operate. They're just told what to do. There. Pardon? Yeah, I'm in and out of there the last couple of weeks. I can see that it's, it's not that they're it's not like they're neglecting on purpose. You know what I mean? Like they're they've got 17 things to do and they've only got time to do four of them. So what do you do? But in the world of nursing, uh, as far as I recall, there's always I don't know if they call it the head nurse or the lead nurse or these nurse supervisor. I don't know, but they're always on the floor. You should be able to get a nursing manager right at the nursing station. Yeah, so this this actually occurred last night. So I I we're we're still pretty new into getting real answers from it. But I mean, a, a, a patient who's able to be who's able to move on his own in a bed should not be in a bed without the guardrail up. That seems pretty. I don't think we need uh, you know a, a nursing diploma for that. That can be. That's common sense. I think is the way you put it. But when it comes to physio and moving people around, you can't just have one person trying to move a grown man who who has no control over his body. Yeah, and I can't remember what the proper term is for that head nurse, but there should always be one on every floor. There's one in four North B, South B, and all the rest of the different uh, floors and wings at the health sciences. Uh, I wish I could remember what they're called. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, you know I, what I mean. I think the head nurse or floor nurse, I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about. Or a charge nurse. Will, Maybe that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, okay. yeah and we, we will be having those conversations as, as a family again. But if you remember, I'm not really the first next of kids, so it's for for when dealing with the nurses, there's two family members that are there that are kind of direct next of kin for that. I'm kind of just an observer on that part. Yeah, fair enough. And even though we're talking about after the fact, it's still completely worthwhile, in my opinion, to take the time to put this formally in front of client relations, because it might just be something that, you know, when these issues pile up, that maybe just maybe there will be administrative change to how some of these things are handled. So it won't get you an immediate solution to your current ongoing problem. But I think I do it anyway. So my course of a, uh, my approach here would be, I'd go to the nursing station and find that charge nurse or head nurse or the nursing supervisor and I would file this with client relations with the health services themselves because you know it might not be immediate but it will be now formalized so I would do both of those things and hopefully we can avoid it happening to uh, this gentleman or anybody else yeah absolutely and I, I, that'll be our course of action for sure I appreciate the time good luck Shane thank you Patty you're welcome take care bye-bye sure. uh, there you go uh, let's keep going let's go to line number three good morning Greg French you're on the air uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, very good, Patty. And yourself? Not bad. Thanks for asking. What's on your mind this morning? Good, good. Well, I uh, I caught the beginning of the show when you were talking about uh, 
the housing situation and you know, Crown Lands opening some development for uh, for private property and being able to uh, develop affordable housing. And it brings back to mind our uh, previous discussions on the topic of the Crown Land situation because we've had the, uh, the House of Assembly has been sitting this month and last month, but we haven't heard any movement on the issue as it affects, you know, private landowners and other people in Newfoundland who uh, who are still stuck and cannot get their own land straightened out for sale or development. And when we're talking about affordable housing and making land available and making housing affordable, surely to God, it seems like this is a topic that should be mentioned in the same breath. Uh, absolutely. I mean, like all of these housing-related conversations, it's not one style of housing. It's not the ongoing commitment that we've had to single-family dwellings. It could be about apartments and about affordability and tiny homes and modular homes and federal land, provincial land, crown land. All of this is involved in the conversation because when we pick at it a little bit here, a little bit there, we are going to be nowhere near achieving the forecasted uh, goals that we've that have been set for us, whether it be the feds talk about 3.5 million or the province talk about 60,000 new in the next six years, we've just got to incorporate everything and figure this thing out. And certainly it seems like if we are moving toward a, uh, a private developer model to solve the housing crisis, again, we're right back to needing to solve the problems that we have in this province right now with the simple fact that the government doesn't know what is and isn't Crown land and the fact that the public genuinely believes in ownership of certain land and only finds out when they go to build or when they go to sell that these problems arise. And then we have situations that a real estate transaction or a residential mortgage that would take 30 days to close is tied up for multiple years. And uh, it's a situation that requires a solution and one that would go some distance toward helping this problem, certainly at least not making the problem worse for other people. 100%. You know, the province knows full well that we have a Crown Lance fiasco. And again, it's bigger than the Diamonds in Catalina. It's bigger than Adam out in Brookfield with his farm. It's going to be an issue, and it has been an issue, for dozens or hundreds or thousands of people. And the unwillingness, like even when Cleveland Forsey tabled the private member's resolution, you know, not even willing to engage in any type of debate. They put forth some very small piecemeal measures to make it easier or better, but they're not doing anything they're not the appreciable steps that need to be taken and that's what uh, i find most disappointing about the whole thing because this is one i don't think anybody can justify the status quo i haven't heard any vocal uh, endorsement of the way things are right now it seems like everybody acknowledges there's a problem there are very very simple solutions that could be put in but there's absolutely no movement happening and we have one week left uh, they're on a constituent week right now but uh, we have one more week of the house being open and there's been absolutely no movement uh, that I've seen in the House to go towards solving this. While we're talking about affordable housing, while that's crisis, we have people, as we speak right now, who are tied up with their houses for sale and their land in court who can't get any distance ahead of us. Greg, you've been our go-to expert on the Crown Lands issue, whether it be with the two different, maybe not knowing the left-right hand what they're doing inside the world of Crown Lands, and some of the other potential solutions to make it easier, reduce the whole quieting of titles, the time, the legal bills that are are part of this. So remind the listeners where you think we should be going here, because it's not as fundamental as we revert to 1976 and everything's solved. So what do you think we should be thinking about and talking about in this issue? Well, ultimately, we just have to acknowledge reality. I mean, there are houses that are built. There are people paying municipal taxes. 
there's occupation on land right now, and we just need a way to streamline the process so the government can figure out who owns what land and why they own it. This will help with municipal taxation once, you know, governments can be certain about who owns what land. If there's land that's in arrears or land that's, you know, abandoned, municipalities can put it up on tax auctions and get it put out to, you know, productive use. We don't need to have this technical problem frustrating normal societal operations. And really, that's where we are. And like I say, this has been in the news for a year. This has been in the news for over a year. And as we sit here today, I don't think we're much further ahead than we are a year ago. And there are just more people who are coming to find that they themselves are in this problem. And when we're talking about making land available and making uh, you know, HST deductions and uh, loan availabilities, that's not going to help anybody if they can't get their land titled in the first place in order to do any of these things. Let's just put in the ears of all of the members listening to the program this morning, even to arm them, whether it be the Plymouth Forces on the PC side or Housing Minister, Social Development Minister of the Crown, put two things on their agenda that you'd like to see deb- uh, debated and questioned fulsome in the House of Assembly when they return next week. Make it so that you can go to Crown Lands and you can get a quick claim deed, a deed of release from the government. That is to say, the government's not going to guarantee that you're the owner, but they'll at least step out of the picture and let you solve your problems yourself. If we could get to that point, the legal profession has been dealing with land title in Newfoundland for 200 years. We can deal with it if we don't have this obstruction. It is as simple as that. If we can get to that point, we can solve a lot of things and we can move a lot of things forward. And I think it would really help with this housing development issue that we're facing today. Really appreciate the time as usual, Greg. Thanks a lot. And thanks for having me, Patty. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Greg French, of course. He's a lawyer out in Clarenville who has been our go-to voice on the issues surrounding Crown Lands. You know, we've got two different divisions. I think we're the only province in the country that has two divisions dealing with the one topic, Crown Lands. Uh, let's get George in before we get to the break. Let's go to line two. George, you're on the air. Hello, George. Hi, George. Hello, Patty. Hi there. Patty, hi. Uh, I was listening to your show, and uh, just a few callers ago, there was a gentleman whose mom fell out of the bed, or uh, his dad, something? A, f- a father-in-law, I believe it is, but yes. A father-in-law, yes. And my first thought was when about 35 years ago, I was on the BC Coast Fishing, and we weren't even covered by uh, workers' compensation if we worked after 18 hours. And I was just wondering where that came into the play. It was just a thought that I had. What do you think? What's your first thought? So I'll, I'll try to understand the question first. So are you saying that a workers' compensation issue is part of his conversation and his concern? Because no. the compensation will cover the staff, not the patient. Yes, of course. My thoughts were that the uh, the staff members... Of a fishing boat, or forget the fishing boat. The staff members need to. Uh, I, the reason we weren't covered by workers' compensation is because we were considered to be dangerous to ourselves and others. But I'm hearing since I've come home that uh, nurses are working 24 hours straight. Nothing, nothing odd about it. 
And I'm wondering where that comes into the conversation. You understand what I'm what I'm saying now? I, I think I do. Uh, that's something I can absolutely put. Look, we hear from Yvette Coffee, for instance, the president of the Registered Nurses Union, talking about just how common it is for accidents to happen, staff to be hurt, whether it be with patient outbursts or simply their own tired state of mind and being hurt on the job. I don't know the direct relationship between that, hours worked, and uh, liability and in comp, but I can put that to Yvette Coffee because that's an interesting question. I really don't know the answer okay then that's why i called let me see if i can figure that out we'll invite miss coffee on we're due for an update with the registered nurses union anyway is the okay all right thanks patty thanks george bye bye you know there's a couple of other questions the whole recruitment issue the retention issue obviously but then, there, of course, there's the expanded scope of practice where they'll be able to, you know, uh, make referrals for further diagnostics and specialists, the potential to be able to write prescriptions. But that comes with a three-component training module. We don't know how that's going to happen, whether it be on the floor during regular work hours, off hours. Will they be paid more? So we'll approach that and whatever else we can think of with Miss Coffee when we get her. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the shelter system. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Lynn, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Just wanted to report a rollover, vehicle rollover on the Pitts Memorial Drive in the area of Walmart. There's many, many emergency vehicles there. Uh, just heads up for anyone that's going either east or west. Traffic is held up. So right there on Pitts Memorial Drive, close by the Walmart and Mount Pearl. So avoid the yeah. area if at all possible. Hopefully it's not a serious issue and hopefully no one's hurt badly. Hopefully not. Thank you for this, Lynn. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Roll over. I mean, I don't know the circumstances that uh, caused this particular incident, but with the water on the road and the ruts that are full and the potential to hydroplane, and then, of course, the tires will eventually will grab again, and then, depending on the angle, roll over is certainly possible. So watch your bobber out there. Let's go to line number one. Robin, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Okay, thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad. Um, I am actually calling, I'm a little bit nervous, uh, which is not like me, but I am calling on behalf of someone else um, with their permission uh, to try and tell their story so people can get an idea of perhaps a different side of the shelter system and some of the, um, I guess, uh, lack of um, policies and support to focus on moving people from the shelters into uh, more long-term living arrangements. So I'll preface um, this person's story uh, by saying that uh, in a previous position uh, in my career, um, I spent between 2015 and 2019 um, leading a working group around looking at ways we can identify and improve outcomes for kids who find themselves in in our uh, protection system. So kids in care, uh, foster kids, that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, we had people at this working group over that period of time, you know, we had the deputy minister of CSSD, we had ADM of CSSD for child protection. We, we had, you know, the people, the doctors responsible for the kayak clinic at um, uh, the Janeway who investigate um, child abuse and things like that, key assets, like we had everyone at the table. And um, at that time, there was a lot of turnover with deputy ministers. 
And so we had like four deputy ministers in four years. So it took a long time for us to kind of um, engage the department in the actual discussions that we were looking to have. And so some of the things we did were like professional development. And so um, you know, and um, research papers and funding, uh, that sort of thing. So while uh, I fully admit that I am not a social worker, um, I have been a part uh, and spent a fair time, a part of conversations around policies and approaches to child protection that are that um, are evidence-based and show, um, you know, positive outcomes for people who enter the system. So I'm coming to this, this story from that lens. So um, I met this person. Uh, I was connected to them um, in September. Um, and they are a, a young mom. And um, they had suffered some pretty um, bad health issues um, that landed them in the hospital a couple of times for, like, weeks at a time. Um, and throughout that time, um, her child was taken from her. Um, you know, she was in the hospital, she was unable to provide care. And to be honest, she doesn't actually really remember because she her health was so um, so bad at the time. She she can't really recall how all that happened. So she starts to improve her health and she gets out of the hospital and the child remains um, in the care of a caregiver where he was placed. They were placed. Um, anyway, I don't want to get into too much of that, but I just want to say that two years later, um, she is still without her child. And so in July, um, she was she found herself in a situation where the home she was living in um, was extremely toxic. And as someone who is um, in recovery, living in recovery, um, she found that she needed to leave that space. And so the social worker advised her to go to the gathering place and um, that she would have a bed there and everything would be taken care of from there. And so she spent a few nights there um, and then ended up in a private shelter. And that was July. And she is still in that shelter today. And in that time, um, she has had, so she's actually in uh, one of the nicest private shelters I've been in. So, you know, I, she would never complain about the, the things that I'm about to tell you about because she knows that it doesn't get any better than this, that things can only get worse. So, but I do want to tell you, uh, I asked her to make a list of things that she has to deal with and the struggles that she faces as a mom who just wants to have their child back and has no hope of getting a home anytime soon and cannot even look at visits in her home until she has more stable housing. And the, no one with any of our departments or community groups is supporting this person. No one. The social worker is supporting the child, but no one is supporting mom. So I want to talk about, this is what she's been, the things that she has faced over four months, okay? Um, so daily and aggressive sexual advances from housemates who refuse to respect her demands for them to stop. It's been a revolving door. There are four people living in this two-bedroom shelter. 
It is located in a very high traffic area of my neighborhood, known for um, drug trade and um, um, men soliciting women. So uh, every time she leaves this space, she risks being in that um, position of being propositioned. So she has had um, four different, I just want to talk about her housemates that she's, because it's been a revolving door. She gets, no one says, oh, would this be a good fit for the house? It's like they just show up. And so in her time, um, she has, so first it was a panhandling um, addict. She, so who was offering her drugs daily already prepared in a needle for her and after she provided um, a transportation to an NA meeting. The next one, very mentally unwell, wanted to give her surgeries and stayed awake for days and defecated in hiding spots, which they later found. The next. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Cosley asked if she knew where to find Subloxone and the man she's living with now, that's the one who's in that room now, um, is this man who I have to, I have to hear in the background, he stands outside her door and he's constantly telling her how, how good he is at pleasing a woman and uh, everything she misses out on. The lock on her door is not enough to make her feel comfortable. And so she is constantly managing those sorts of she's the only woman in a house with these men so then there's a, another man uh followed her uh to her friend's house told her her reason for existing was to annoy him and that she was a demon okay uh, so who can do what who can do anything about those types of, types of circumstances not to say that they're acceptable behaviors period but who are we suggesting would be the human social worker police officer I don't know, even know, or counselor, like whose responsibility would some of those issues fall in under? Well, no one. And so as we, as we, um, but the other thing is, is that she has no, there's no one, like she's on a waiting list, way down on the waiting list, okay, with housing. And I, this, my reason to call actually stemmed from, I'm writing her a letter, a letter on her behalf to housing and CSSD to request that she be prioritized for um, housing because no one has said, like, we're working on it for you, okay? Um, the social worker has not even offered to help her look for housing. Uh, she, she, there's no way she will be able – now, she, she has a, um, a career, She's tr she has a, a, you know, she's been trained to, to be employed, but she can't get a job until she gets out of the shelter. Um, because so, of what? The precarious nature of living in a shelter or is there a fundamental well, yes, reason? Because, well, yes, because, because she lives in a shelter. If, what if one of these um, people that she's living with put her in danger and she had to respond? Okay? Then she ends up in trouble. She gets kicked out. Where does she go? So I, I just want to go back through this list again. She has no privacy, okay? So the lock doesn't work. Uh, she's unable to cook or bake. There's no stove or oven in there. Every single meal, and this is, again, like she's getting fed well, 
compared to like some people are getting two hungry mans and a, a frozen um, breakfast sandwich. The, the, the people who run her shelter actually employ a woman who does home cooking and prepares all the meals for their staff. Like I'm telling you, she's got like gold star at this place. And so, but this, my friend has um, a, a, you know, health issues that require a special diet. And, you know, she never gets a choice of what she eats. And so when you're living in a shelter, you don't get income support. You get something called a comfort allowance. Right. Okay. So while the shelter operator is being paid a hundred and some odd dollars, I don't know, it varies depending on what situation, a night, we're only giving the, the person staying in the shelter $4 a day. Okay, so there was a story in the news not too long ago, a, a fellow who was in jeopardy of losing his son because there wasn't a shelter that could accommodate a father and son, and they've been fast-tracked for housing. I think they might even already be in. Is this not a possibility? Because it sounds like a very similar circumstance. Well, that's what I'm working on now, but let me tell you. Um, <laughs> we're at the point now with the social worker. The child has been away from their mother for so long they're starting to talk about adoption into the foster home. And so now this person is facing, and, and like they were just notified that they have a, you know, a, a case conference in a day or two, and they, the lawyer from legal aid has not met with them in months. The social worker drops things on her at the last minute. And so she lives in constant fear of losing her child and being attacked constantly by her housemates. And like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so all that to say, I just want people to understand that, you know, when it comes to poverty reduction, okay, when it comes to housing and five point plans, all right, we need to focus on all these areas where we're failing. Instead of like coming up with these new plans, if you look at the health accord recommendations for the social determinants of health if government would just do that we i'm telling you we need more we need more humans working with people who actually care uh, a lot of the folks who are in these positions like everyone working in housing housing is understaffed um you know the community groups are understaffed Everyone at this level working with these people are going above and beyond, and they can't keep up. I'm going to use the analogy. you got a nice head of hair. You ever used um, dry shampoo? No. Okay, but you know what it is. I know what it is. Okay. So imagine you don't, you just don't, you give up washing your hair, and you just keep putting more and more dry shampoo on to cover up the grease. Well, that's what our government's approach to anything poverty related has been since 2015. And it's time to wash the hair, Patty. It's time to wash the hair. So I, I do have to leave it at this problem because I'm way over yeah. time, but I am curious to hear what's coming in this poverty reduction announcement this afternoon. It's a crying shame that the the program that was in place at the envy of the country was so-called or f for some reason abandoned, and yet all of these issues continue to manifest in greater numbers, more severe stories. It's, it's heartbreaking stuff. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you for doing this.
Thank you for giving it to me. You're welcome. Her. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Dave, I have no idea where I am. Is it? Am I off to a break right here? I probably am. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about poverty reduction and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the uh, PC member for Bonavista. He's the opposition critic for poverty reduction and social development. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, I, like you and like uh, most residents in Newfoundland and Labrador, eagerly await um, today the the poverty reduction strategy that will be launched at two, and you referenced that several times. Uh, I think you may have also referenced in your preamble that we did have a state-of-the-art plan back in 2005 to 2015, which got a whole lot of national recognition for bringing Newfoundland and Labrador out of poverty. And, um, you know, many people have, have referenced that. And when that program started, Patty, uh, there were 15.5% of children in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, were living in poverty. That made a significant difference, uh, even to the point of bringing children out of poverty and those other groups in Newfoundland and Labrador, that we've got a whole lot of national recognition, even to the point that we probably led the country in the top two, probably second in the country back in 2015. Your previous caller mentioned that 2015, what significant thing happened in our province was that we had a new government that came in at that time. And I would say to you, while there were measures from 2015 that were put into place, we found that poverty from that point in time start to increase again through a myriad of factors. But it looks that they did not prioritize that plan. I've been in the House since 2019, and I've never heard anyone in government reference the success of that plan or saying that they want to reactivate parts of that plan in order to to move ahead. We will see this afternoon as to uh, whether there are some remnants of that plan that they're going to reactivate or to, you know, with, with some degree of vigor. But the question would be is why did it take so long from 2015 uh, to current when we know what, uh, where we were headed in, um, in this province and country. And even with an effective strategy that was in place, it's not like poverty was eradicated and there was no need no. to continue. It no. was still an ongoing concern, and there's always more governments can do. And individual yeah. responsibility plays a role here and opportunities. But what was some of the key, or what were some of the key components of that poverty reduction strategy? I can recall a few, and I wonder will they be mimicked or replicated here, but what was, what was left unattended to? Well, there was a significant amount of money that was there put in. I, I think it might have been over a million dollars that was put in to increase the income support rates yep. for couples. Um, and, and, and again, the data, which is the same now, we're looking at single clients. I think single mothers out there now, and many of them with, with children, but single mothers seem to be the um, the one that would be high on the poverty scale now. Um, I know they had the funding to increase the first child benefit um, at that point in time. They had the improved earnings exemption uh, for working income support clients. 
those were some of the measures that they had. They, they had a whole focus on education. We know that uh, you know education is probably the strongest predictor. Um, Patty, you, you know, we often talk about education. If we still got a 10% absenteeism rate in our school system, that's huge. And, and, and that got a whole lot of prevalence. And there's been articles written from uh, 2005 to current, which stresses the importance of, of education and early childhood education. So if we look at all those indicators that we've got, it would beg that we ought to have taken something substantive. I keep going back what Josh Smee had stated, that if we took those that are out on income support, which I can rest assured knowing that when I work in the district of Bonavista, those that would be in the greatest and highest degree of poverty in the district of Bonavista would be those that would be on income support. And Josh Mee would say that if you doubled what they currently receive, if you double it, they still fall below the poverty line that we would have in our in our country. So, you know, there are some significant measures. I just want to ma- mention as well that, uh, you know, I eagerly um, in – October of last year, joined the All-Party Committee, uh, the All-Party Committee that would look at basic income. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that in October. We had our first meeting uh, early November. I was eagerly knowing that be- long before where we find ourselves now, one year later, there would be something substantive that would come from that that would take some meaningful uh, role in. Now, I can't see our work and our committee work taking any impact into this one because we never got to the point where we had we even got recommendations yet and we know that the budget process is probably beginning now patty you you get into early november they're well into the budget preparation for you know for for next march the only thing i would say is that we haven't got to the point of the of even recommending so until it becomes a priority, and we'll see what is rolled out at uh, at two o'clock this afternoon, we can't have like um, you know the food banks of Canada stating that um, you know child poverty where we are, and other agencies stating that we could conceivably have 25 percent of our children in Newfoundland and Labrador living in food insecure homes. Yeah, and, and that was last that was January of this year. I think that article came out, Patty. When when we talk about that, but. I'll give you some numbers for context. Children using food banks in this province, and the report went back to March and looked at March year over year. There was a 12% increase in people using food banks, period. Children represented one-third of the food bank users, and they only represent 20% of the population. So there you go. There are some numbers. You mentioned education and absenteeism and whatnot. That 10% number, I think you're probably referring to those who are chronically absent. Yes, yes. Which is a remarkable number. So when the child youth advocate, Jackie Lake Cavanaugh, at the time, she made that report public and talking about the fact, and here's where the number becomes extremely disconcerting. If you are chronically absent in grade six, 75% of those children chronically absent in grade six never graduate high school. And we know what that means in a competitive world, competitive job force, and an opportunity to have a gainful, meaningful, prosperous life. So those are staggering numbers, both of those in context. Petty, disturbing. Uh, the only thing I would say, back in that uh, poverty reduction plan, uh, 2005 to 2015, which got such uh, accreditation and across Canada, they, they stated in that report that 60% of those living in poverty had not completed the their high school yep. uh, education. And, and so we, we're aware of the linkage. But if I ask you, when is the last time you talked about, or, or on your show, or whether the government has brought, uh, you know, uh, significant incentives? 
or initiatives that would be undertaken to make sure that schooling or education um, that that doesn't occur. The absenteeism rate is not what it is today. These are the things that I think that uh, people look for leadership in the government to say, what have you done and has it moved the needle? Yeah, the, what I w- would start with is we need to, first off, need to know why you're absent. Because, yeah. the, and that's where it's not just a Department of Education issue. This nope. would include uh, the Justice Department, the Health Department, Social Development, there's transportation. There's so many different departments that would be involved in trying to rectify or yes. to I- identify the reason why you're absent and then to try to do something about it. Because it's not just a one reason why children aren't in no. school. No. So I would start with that. Uh, Craig, I'm late for the break, but I appreciate you making time. Anything else quickly? No, no, that's good. And, and you, you hit nail on the head. Poverty is multidimensional. You're, you're 100% correct. So listen, I, I eagerly look forward to uh, 2 o'clock. Um, you know, I don't think my committee or the committee I was on on basic income has had any in- impact or input. At least I'm not aware of it. But I'll certainly, like you, be tuned in at 2 o'clock to see as to where, where we're going. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Thank Craig. Thank you, Patty. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Craig Parity is the PC member for Bonavista. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, Colleen's in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Colleen, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thank you. How about yourself? Good. Good. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do. Uh, the purpose of my call uh, today is just to acknowledge uh, November 8th as uh, Indigenous Veterans Day. So Indigenous Veterans Day is observed in Canada on November 8th today in recognition of Indigenous contributions to military service, in particular the First, war, uh, first uh, World War, the Second World War, and the Korean uh, war and today uh, was first observed in Winnipeg on November 8th in 1994. Um, so I just wanted to shine a little spotlight on um, today's uh, November 8th, Indigenous uh, Veterans Day, and in particular, um, the some 7,000 Indigenous people who served in both World Wars and the Korean conflict. Um, and I guess in my own family, my grandfather Frank uh, Paul served in World War II. Uh, my dad served in the Korean conflict, and uh, my brother, Captain uh, Frank Paul, who served um, in the Afghanistan mission. Uh, in particular, his journey and his story uh, is near and dear to my heart today, too, uh, with 35 years uh, service um, in the in the military. Um, he really, you know, loved his job. He was a selfless and inspirational leader. Um, and one soldier referred to him as an amazing man. So, you know, he remained in the medical uh, services throughout his career. Um, and I think today is an important day to really uh, shine a spotlight on Indigenous people who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, I was seven when my brother was, uh, when, in, when he enlisted, he uh, hitchhiked to St. John's and called back home and told my mom he wouldn't be back because because he had signed up for the Army. Um, so 35 years later, uh, he was the 153rd soldier lost in the Afghanistan mission, uh, by the way, and he remained in the medical services throughout his career. Um, he moved up the ranks to become warrant officer at the Canadian Forces Health Services Training Centre in CFP Borden. 
Um, and after that, he served as the chief warrant officer for the Canadian Forces Health Services Group. And he was also something that he really didn't brag about. And this was the kind of soldier he was, that he was instrumental in creating the Canadian Association of Physician Attendants. So he received a special commission giving him the rank of captain and placing him as operations officer for the Ottawa-based uh, 28 Airfield Ambulance, where he trained junior medical technicians. And he cared deeply about the role medical technicians played in the Canadian Forces, and he sought to ensure that all everyone else had the training and support they needed. But his final assignment saw him posted in Afghanistan, and as I mentioned before, he was the um, health services support for the Joint Task Force uh, in Afghanistan, um, and he passed away. He was acknowledged as the 153rd sir, a soldier who passed away in the Afghanistan mission. So I just wanted to shine a, a spotlight in particular on him today and his 35 years of service, but also to acknowledge you know, the other 7,000 Indigenous people who served in, in those conflicts and to also acknowledge the estimated 12,000 um, Indigenous people who have served in the Canadian Armed Forces in the past uh, century or so. Um, so I just wanted to bring that to your attention today and, and throw out a bouquet of gratitude and acknowledgement to not only my own immediate family uh, members who have served and the other 7,000 Indigenous people who have served, but to all in you know um, veterans uh, today and leading up to November the 11th, encourage uh, people to not forget um, and make an effort to show uh, your gratitude, I guess, on November 11th to all of uh, the veterans uh, and people who continue to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. Of which there's upwards of 3,000 uh, Indigenous people still serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. This is a question based in ignorance. Is there a certain significance of November 8th for Aboriginal Veterans Day? We understand the significance of November 11th as Armistice Day. Is the 8th anything representative in particular, or is it simply to identify a different day to recognize Aboriginal veterans? Uh, it was uh, observed first in Winnipeg right. in 1994, um, and it was observed uh, just as uh, a recognition for Indigenous contributions to military service because they were often overlooked. Okay. Uh, yeah, so November 8th is just an addition. It's not to take away or replace, um, you know, November the 11th, obviously, uh, but it's a special day just to highlight the Indigenous uh, people who who have served in particular with the Canadian Air Forces. And I'm glad you brought it to the show today, Colleen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day, Patty. You too. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the 11 o'clock news. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Let's say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador NDP. Let's go, Raj Sharon. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Raj. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to call in and thank you for uh, taking me. Uh, basically, we had a convention last uh, weekend past, and it went really well. We had delegates from across the province, um, uh, so it was in-person and remote. And we elected, obviously, a new executive, which includes myself and a great team coming in to help, as you know, the caucus 
Leela Evans and Jordan Brown, but our leader, Jim Din. So you can see the impact that the NDP have been making in terms of policy and discussions, because obviously the housing crisis, the health care, Jim has been and the caucus, you know, out in the forefront talking about this. And uh, obviously everyone's uh, interested to see what's going to take place this afternoon. Um related to the announcement but our convention like i said was well attended and uh, we reiterated the points from housing and healthcare we need a more holistic plan right it isn't as we're hearing the callers today and absenteeism to essentially uh not safe places to live and there there isn't really a reason for our, given our population and the resources that we have available to have this many systemic problems. Like, I find it really hard to believe that, you know, with just over half a million people, we can't manage to make sure that housing's not an issue, education's not an issue, healthcare is not an issue. And if it was simply a matter of money, we'd be well ahead of the game. A population, they say, which I think is creeping upwards of 540,000 people at this point, yeah, a budget exactly. at about $9 billion, healthcare budget around $4 billion. You would think the outcomes and the circumstances, the reality of life for people would be better than it is today. You know, even some of the numbers you hear thrown around about uh, average income rising 5.7%, you know, outpacing CPI and all that stuff, that, that really does negate the need to talk about median versus average because you back out the top 10 and the bottom 10, get a better, clearer picture. And, of course, the issues regarding the bottom 10% are vastly different than the ones concerning the top 10. So we got to right. dig into the median a little bit clearer here, in my opinion, Rosh. Uh, very quickly, and this is not necessarily about the NDP, but it's about how party executive actually operates. Where do you put your prime focus? I mean, supporting the caucus of three, obviously. But what the want for the NDP to do better, I think the high watermark ever for the number of NDP MHAs has been five, if I remember that number uh, correctly. Right. So, exactly, yeah. you know, digging in with district offices, election preparedness is not going to be every day, all day, leading up to, you know, every four years and the, inter the time in between. But the strength of district offices, the compilation of data, the readiness, the volunteers, where does that fall on your hierarchy of concerns as the president of the party? Well, actually, that's pretty much the the focal point, right? Like, obviously, the policy and the speaking, that's to the leader and the caucus. But our goal here is to support them in terms of helping to take and create <clears throat> the list that we need for the district associations, to your point, to talk about that, taking people that are supporters to becoming members, to being active, to becoming candidates. That's the role of the executive. And uh, what we need to do is uh, assist them, obviously, in terms of helping create policy. But it's creating that structure uh, to allow for candidates to run, to get their fundraising so the candidates can focus on knocking on doors and talking to people and listening, which is a big aspect. But ours is like the structural things. How do we execute our campaigns? How do we get um, people out to the doors and the voter contact and helping them identify people that need assistance to get to the poll? So it's from the beginning to getting district associations, candidates, to helping them execute throughout the course of the campaign and helping our leaders and incumbent caucus members also, you know, be able to campaign effectively. That's our role as an executive. 
this would be uh, an issue regarding optics. If and when a party, provincially or federally, can't field a candidate in every district or every riding, it gives that sense of lack of preparedness. And it should not include candidates who are simply placeholders. And we know that happens sometimes. People come forward because they're encouraged or urged at the 11th hour to say, look, we really need someone on the ballot. When a party can't field a full complement of candidates, how do you think that hurts overall, the ability to fundraise and to be taken seriously as a real legitimate party that could or should have a shot at the seat of power? No, and that's a fair question, right? And so to that point, um, obviously, historically, we've had elections where we've fielded a full uh, set of candidates and some that we, we haven't. So, you know, I'm not going to speak to the past. The goal here is for us to field the full 40 and go forward with candidates. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, one of the key components of this and is that, you know, we're supposed to have elections on a periodic basis so that people can plan and run as candidates. And it's very difficult, or it becomes more difficult for the individuals. We might have interest in people and running in all the can uh, in all the seats. But if an election's called at an inopportune time because it's not supposed to be called for another year, year and a half, which is part of our cultural politics in Canada. You know, the governing parties, they call elections when it's suitable for them, not when we already have in legislation, you know, every four years. So it is obviously our responsibility to get to 40 candidates. Um, but the other aspect is we want individuals. I mean, if you want a democracy to be healthy, allow citizens to plan, to run. You know, it's not, it's very, it's much easier for incumbents because they're already in office, but for citizens that want to get involved, they need to be able to plan. I need to take a month off. I need to knock on doors. I need to fundraise. And if you call a snap election, it just kind of proves that the governing groups are anti-democratic in that context. But that doesn't negate my responsibility or that of the executive to get 40 candidates. But you get the point, right? We really want citizen participation. Let's do it by the rules that we've stated out. Yeah, election calls at whim, and when you're riding high in the polls or you've just had a significant political victory, let's say, for instance, if we get a uh, so-called victory in the 2041 issue or debate or negotiations, you know, that can't be a reason why we just go to the polls. You know, there's got no. to be a bit more rhyme and reason to it as opposed to when it's simply politically most advantageous. And I'm not being naive. I know how the bloody game works, but right. it doesn't mean it's working right. to the best interest of those who are not candidates, who are not party members, who are not party executive. Uh, Raj, final thoughts to you, or pardon me, Raj, final thoughts to you before yeah. we say goodbye this morning. Uh, no, I mean, I really want to thank uh, the folks across the province for uh listening to Jim and Leela and Jordan, and you can see them resonating in terms of uh, on topics, especially Jim being out there for the housing crisis, because that's an indicator, not just that people don't have housing, like what's going to be the impact then to the healthcare system of people that are not housed, not safe. And then all of this goes down the line in terms of not having a holistic plan. Really, you know, for uh, numbers of reaching 550,000, we really shouldn't have the systemic problems that we are facing. And uh, I'm really looking forward to um, Jim continuing with uh, Jordan and Leela leading and bringing that up. And as you can see in the coming weeks and months, we'll, uh, we'll get more and more participation from across other citizens across the province. 
And regardless of the approach taken politically, you know, we're not going to eradicate problems. We're not going to eradicate poverty in full. It's not going to be, you know, completely settled or solved with one party, one policy or another. The problem here is the prevalence, right? It's just how many people are living in these types of circumstances, you know, because there's going to be people who need the social safety net. There's going to need be people that need the health care system. There's going to be people that will find themselves in very precarious, homeless or almost homeless situations. But... It's the numbers now that are just getting out of control, which makes it unmanageable and makes policy and the complexity of policy that much more difficult to implement because, you know, if you have a manageable number, regardless of who we're talking about in my, inside my business or inside government itself, right. manageable numbers allow for manageable policies. Numbers that are getting out of control because then we're going to try to catch all the flies and all the issues in one fell swoop and no government policy has ever been uh, able to satisfy that, regardless of what we're talking about. Raj, congratulations on your election as the president of the party. Stay in touch. Oh, yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Richard Cashin's in the queue. Talk about the War Museum in Ottawa. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Richard Cashin. You're on the air. Oh, well, before I get to the main reason for my call, a couple of weeks ago I talked to you about General Milley mm -hmm. and uh, the lack of attention paid there, too. And then I phoned C Reveals, the NTV with a suggestion that, but I never did get through to anybody, but somebody should interview him. And the best candidate I have is Patty Daly. You should try and contact him and do an interview with him on your show. But that's not the main reason I called. Okay. But you should think about that. I had a friend who uh, phoned me yesterday and uh, she was one of several people, mostly Bell Islanders, that were with me when I was at St. of X. And uh, she lives in Montreal now, but she has a daughter working in Ottawa. And she went to the War Museum, and there's no reference to Beaumont Hamill or anything like that. And she raised the question. They said, well, they weren't Canadians then. Well, that's linear thinking, because I wasn't a Canadian at the time of Confederation, and I was one of several hundred thousand. But we were made Canadians, and when we became part of Canada, our history became part of Canada. But it's not covered in the War Museum, so I suggested to her that she contact our senators and our MPs, because this is a great little cause. I mean, when I was in politics, backbenchers looked for sort of niches, right? Well, there's two things an MP or senator could do. Introduce a private member's bill, or the easier thing is a resolution, because this is linear thinking and unimaginative. We are part of Canada. Our history is part of Canada, and therefore the war regime should deal with the Royal Newfoundland Regiment and Beaumont Hamill. It's been a long time since I've been to the War Museum, which is at one Vimy place <laughs> in Ottawa. And in Memorial Hall, when I, and once again, this is quite a long time ago, there was absolutely reference to Beaumont Hamill. I'm surprised it's gone away. And something well, else. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I don't know that it's gone. The person who phoned me was at the museum and saw no, I think she was looking for some kind of an exhibit. There were exhi I've never been there. There are exhibits, right? There are, yeah. Well, there was no exhibit. I guess that's what she meant. And in any event, I thought that that was uh, 
have very honor because once we became Canadians, our history also became part of Canada. And so the remedy I suggested to this person who phoned me was contact our senators and our MPs because I remember when I was in that category, people looked for opportunities to take a niche for themselves and an MP or a senator could introduce a bill or a resolution to draw attention to that because I think it's outrageous. I mean, we are Canadians. Now, I, when I when I was an MP and in life after that, I did find there was an element. Not I don't. I'm not a conspiracy theory person, but there were certain parts of the bureaucracy that had a pejorative view of Newfoundland. I encountered that numerous occasions. But I, why the why we don't have an exhibit there? is, as I said, a lack of imagination and linear thinking. And the remedy lies with some MP or senator taking up that cause. So I just thought I'd put that, maybe some of them listen to your show. I'm glad you did. Uh, Inside, there's a variety of exhibits inside the War Museum. It's actually quite a solemn place, but it's very, very well done. I remember there was a... uh, an exhibition that included dispatches from the front line, but it was during the Second World War. The reason I remember it, and one of the reasons we went, is because it was authored and presented by a relation of mine, Peter Neary, who did a lot of historical work, a lot of it done with the late Patrick O'Flaherty. So we went specifically to see that, but uh, once again, that's a number of, number of years ago, but that does not incorporate our role and presence in the First World War. Oh, yeah. Well, so, Peter Neary was one of, if not our top historian. No question. Question. And I mention that again because you mentioned Bell Islanders. He's one. Yes, he's one too. Yep. Well, there was five or six Bell Islanders, mostly women. They all graduated summa or magna cum laude. And the one that didn't, like me, was Ray Murphy, was the best hockey player in the Maritimes <laughs> and captain of our team. <laughs> Terrific. It's good to have you on, okay. Richard. All right. Take care. Appreciate and your time. You, you should think about phoning General Millie. I will do exactly that. There's certainly no. Uh, no shortage of issues to broach with a former chair- chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And, and Exactly. Okay, I look forward to hearing it. Thank, Thank you, Richard. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Ed. You're on the air. Hey, how are you today? Not too bad. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad. A couple of days ago, of course, everybody remembers the carbon tax vote up in Ottawa, or if they don't, they should look it up. One thing that really bugged me, and I can't even believe I even witnessed it and see it live on TV, but I did. Kevin McDonald, the MP of CBS. I went back and reviewed it again and again and again, and sure enough, for some stupid and unusual reason, he seemed to have actually appeared to give the people in the House of Commons the middle finger. Not once, but twice. Yeah, I don't. I don't know idea what is wrong with people when they are elected as MPs in Ottawa. I don't know if they go brain dead or what, but the display of that itself alone is absolutely and totally disgusting. And people who are supposed to represent you as part of the country, as part of Newfoundland and Labrador, in the House of Commons. Like, I saw it, and you know, it's a one of those thinly veiled when people are wanting to flip the bird but don't want to be so direct to simply have the one middle finger up and the old 
two finger scratch head. Look, to me, it looked like exactly what you thought you thought you saw as well. That's what I saw. Mr. McDonald says I certainly did not intend that whatsoever. But, you know, it's completely inappropriate. No doubt about that. But add that to the list of completely boorish behavior by politicians over the decades, whether it be in the House of Assembly, the House of Commons, the juvenile stuff that goes on is just pathetic. I mean, a lot of it is absolutely pathetic. I mean, in my mind, I don't, I, I don't know my everybody else, but in my mind itself, if I see that display of a person who is representing the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, I think the person technically should either one or two things, either apologize or resign. Because there is absolutely no need of an individual up there acting like a childish twat in the government, representing the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. There's absolutely, absolutely no need of it whatsoever. Because if that's the case, then that person who actually states on their own profile, their own profile to actually have somebody representing up there, a, you know, a quality person, right? If actually stated in their own profile on the Internet, on their own name, to actually act like that, then obviously that person has lost any type of respect for anybody here. Do you think Period. so? Do you really think that, Ed? There seems to be, look, when the Conservatives stand up and say that it was Mr. McDonald's flipping the bird at Canadians, uh, or do you think that when he's getting barbed by members opposite, that it was aimed right at them, not to everyone living in Alberta or BC or Manitoba? I get your frustration with that type of behavior, but there's also a semblance of clutching of pearls here as well, do you think? Well, I mean, he voted against the actual the, the actual vote itself to, to cut the carbon tax for hope, heating, fuel, and everything else around Canada. And then he was one of yeah. only a couple of Liberals to vote with the Conservatives to cut the carbon tax away from home heating. So he was a hero, and he went from hero to zero in seconds flat, didn't he? Well, he voted against it. In this particular one, but he spoke out against his own party on the carbon tax many, many times. Conservatives were applauding him far and wide right across the country, and now he's the uh, a villain. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, if you're saying you're against the carbon tax and then vote with, you're you're against the carbon tax itself, and then vote down an actual bill to eliminate the carbon tax or give people a break, that's just a stab in the back. Yeah, but the the what actually happened was he was speaking out about the carbon tax being applied to home heating fuel in in particular, and so this private member's bill brought forward by Mr. Poliev and Conservatives was to axe the carbon tax in full. And he voted against that. So there's just those two distinctions. Now, they're not, they're very real, but he got what he wanted with the carbon tax on home heating fuel. This resolution was about taking the carbon tax off of everything. So that's what he voted mm-hmm. against. But, and yes, that was how he reacted. And it should be taken off everything because really there's no need of it anyway. It really isn't. Okay. Anyway, whoever, the, Ken should apologize for something to his own people. Newfoundland and Labrador, everybody you've done that in the first place. And he did. It was on video. I mean, it's clear video. You can't you can't mistake in that. It's not doctored. I seen it live. I yeah, couldn't I even believe he did it. I saw it. Yeah. Disgusting. We'll see what the speaker comes up with now uh, about whether there be any demand of apologies or any sanction or what have you. The speaker now, of course, is Greg Fergus, new to the position, and I would imagine we'll hear that by the end of the week anyway, but yeah, fair enough. And he's been taken to task far and wide. And once again, he was a hero there for a minute for even conservative voters. And now, not so much. Uh, Ed, I appreciate making time for the show. Thanks a lot. 
You're welcome. Please Take care. Stand in my right. own show. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he said there. How are we doing out there, Dave, to wrap up the rest of this program? All right, uh, today might be a good day to get on the show. If you're interested in calling to share your perspective, bring up a new topic, elaborate on what you've heard, in and around town, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Michael Harris. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing today? Very well. How about you? Oh, not too bad. I'm calling today. I'm down at Manuel's River Community, Inc., a charity out in uh, Conception Bay South. We have a big auction launching today, part of our Connect the Trails fundraiser, and lots of goodies on there, uh, including a, a flight by PAL. We have several watches, jewelry, art, and it can all be found on BartlettAuctions.com. It's never-ending fundraising to keep a place like the Manuel's River Interpretation Center and the, the, the network of trails in operation and up to snuff. It's a terrific organization with great stuff. So dig in a little further to a couple of the specific auction items that you think will be of interest, and then we'll get into some of the monies raised and what it's earmarked for. Absolutely. So some of the uh, auction items we have there now is uh, PAL Airlines Round Trip for Two, which has been donated by uh, PAL Airlines, of course. We have several diff cards from a n- number of companies. We have a beautiful ladies' watch uh, currently on there. Uh, a lot of people got their eye on that one. Uh, espresso machines, mixers, uh, a lot of indigenous art, uh, different handbags, apparel, uh, just about a little bit of everything. Good chance to get a good Christmas gift. It sounds pretty great. Is there a goal in mind for this fundraising initiative? Currently, the goal is to fundraise as much as we can to continue <laughs> our trail development. Um, a lot of people know already, we just finished our Canyon Trail. That was a big part of our Connected Trail fundraiser and got us through that phase. So right now, we're looking at doing a bit more development and uh, connect our trails and finish connecting up our community. So what is the plan for trail expansion? Trail expansion right now, we're looking at some things down uh, downstream a bit towards the ocean side, linking up a pathway down there. And, uh, of course, we're looking at maybe other side of Canyon in the future. Uh, a few other things we're looking at, of course, the continent maintenance and upkeep of our trails um, often, you know, is a big priority for us, uh, keeping them groomed, uh, well-maintained, litter-free, and, you know, a lot of stuff in that area. Uh, of course, we do have the trailway that cuts through, but besides the trailway, all the other trails are uh, taken care of through us. There was unfortunate circumstances in the recent past where, you know, some purposeful damage and graffiti and spray paint and benches being beat up and what have you. Has that passed? Because that was a real sin to see that. We've seen a, a lot less of it happening on our trails now after we kind of got out to the public and, you know, kind of asked, you know, if you see any vandalism or anything on our trails, l- let us know. And we increased our presence on the trails, of course. Um, our education team has done an awesome job navigating down through them, and we've seen a huge decline with it. And we think now the message has gotten through that vandalism really hurts our trails at the end of the day. And then it keeps you from providing programs and services in the interpretation center itself. It hampers the want to expand the trail network because all of a sudden you got to pro- 
focus money and elbow grease on things like doing away with the damage and cleaning up the graffiti and repairing the benches. So it's in the community's best interest if people would knock that off. I did think, it, now it's not necessarily funny, but it did give me a little wry smile when people were making bubble baths in the river, even though I know it's harmful to the environment. But remember when that went on? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I remember that one. The uh, big thing with that is, of course, introducing any, like, bubble bath or bubble chemicals into the water supply introduces phosphates other chemicals yeah. that can heavily impact wildlife populations. So we've been really very much just discouraging people from doing that so if you're interested in having a look at any of the online auction uh, auction items that are up for bid just go to bartlettauctions.com and you can have a look there and help the folks out at manuals river interpretation center do what they do best Absolutely. And one more thing. Sure. On uh, November the 12th, this coming Sunday, we have a holiday market happening inside the Interpretation Center. We're looking at around 45 to 50 vendors, all different things. Um, and admission is going to be by donation to Manuals River Community, Inc. So it's another opportunity to get a good Christmas gift. Sounds good, Michael. Thanks for this. No problem. You take care now. You too, man. Bye-bye. Michael Harris with the Manuals River Interpretation Center. All right, let's go to line number two and talk a little word search NL with Nick Cranford from Flanker Press. Good morning, Nick. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Uh, hey, how's it going? I'm doing okay this morning. I appreciate you asking. How about yourself? Oh, awesome. I just wanted to uh, let everyone know that uh, Word Search Newfoundland Labrador Volume 2 is now out on shelves, and it's making its way across the province. And it's selling like hotcakes. Uh, compare what's happening with the Volume 2 with Volume 1. How did the sales go on Volume 1? Oh, Volume 1, we, we've gone through three. We had to go to three print runs all within the space of a month. It, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, we've sold thousands upon thousands. And I know you're doing famously well with Volume 2. The last update I had from Argo was that it had cleared like maybe 8,000 copies. Oh, yeah. Well, well, well north of that, actually. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing really well, yeah. So word search, you know, it's a real uh, common pastime and hobby for so many people. Mm -hmm. And it's not new, but somehow, some way, what do you think the magic is behind your word search volume representing the province? Because I don't imagine every word, word search book flies off the shelves like this one is. Well, I, th I think it just has to do with the whole, you know, our population, Newfoundland, Labrador, where, where we're such a, a unique place and, and the way that it's done. I mean, like we're, we're learning everything about Newfoundland, Labrador in a fun way. Um, it's a great tourism thing, um, you know, and given and it's our, our demographic, too, because, I mean, lots of people are into it. Right. That they are. So break it down a little bit. Talk about some of the 140 puzzles. How are people learning about the province? So what are some of the puzzles that would be given a history lesson, for instance? Oh, well, it's got everything in there. Uh, are every Almost so many communities, uh, landmarks, our history, uh, Newfoundland sayings, um, politicians, people you may know are, are in there as well, you know, you know? They're fun puzzles. I know that one of the maybe historically significant puzzles is about Beaumont Hamill. Then you've yep. got something that's incorporated the Come From Away, which was a smash yep. hit on Broadway, and of course had a great run here in the province in Gander over the summer. I think there's some sports teams and different businesses represented. So, bravo and congratulations to you. Well, thank you. How do you come up with actually creating the puzzle? It's one thing to come up with the subject matter for a puzzle, but quite another to actually put it to the word search the way we're all familiar with it in our mind's eye. Is there like a piece of software there that does it, or do you just arbitrarily make the puzzle yourself? How does that work? 
Well, I, I come up with the uh, the puzzles. Uh, I came up with each one myself. Uh, the puzzle theme, like there's usually the average is around 15 words per puzzle. So I, I came up with each word that, that all revolves around a theme. Like, for example, you guys, VOCM, are in uh, around puzzle 95 or so of volume two. So I have 15 names of people who are associated with uh, VOCM, including yourself, by the way. Cool. <laughs> uh, every reason to grab a copy from me, mother. That's right. I mean, every, everyone wants one. I mean, you know, there's, there's absolutely every reason. Uh, good on you. So just for the fundamentals of how you lay it down to paper. So you just take the square, you put the mm-hmm. 15 words in whatever direction on the uh, in, in the blocks, and then you just yep. randomly put in other letters around it and create it yourself versus the computer does it for you? Oh, oh we, well, I use computer software and all that. Oh, that's there. what I was getting at. Do mm-hmm. you have the this in uh, large print for seniors, or is it all a one-size-fits-all? Well, it, it's good for all ages. Um, you know, it's, it's great for uh, for most people. Now, um, I am also looking into doing a, a more jumbo print version of Newfoundland Labrador, just for those who may have a little bit of vision trouble. But for the most part, it, it is pretty accessible. It sounds good. Nick, where do we get it? Uh, oh, it's, it's available at Costco, Chapters, Kohl's. Um, Irving's Orange Stores across the island, Down Home, Dildo Brewery, Island Treasures, uh, oh, what else? Uh, Arlums, you you name it. I mean, it's in it's in every place that carries uh, fine Newfoundland Labrador books. And we want to support the local publisher, so let's put a copy of Word Search Newfoundland and Labrador Volume Two in some Christmas stockings this go around this Christmas season. Good to have you on the show, Nick. Congratulations. Take care, Patty. Thank you, you very much. My pleasure. All the best. Mm-hmm. Right, there we go. Word search. It's a fun hobby. A lot of people do it. That's for bloody well sure. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jackie. You're on the air. Hi, um, uh, Mr. Daly. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, Towns and Local Service District Act. Um, I was listening yesterday, and I, I admit I, I haven't read uh, you know, the uh, new act, what they're proposing, all of it. And um, I was listening yesterday, and, I, and I've and i looked at some of the news releases, and they're talking about giving more power to the councils and empowering them. And as I listened yesterday, I, I, I heard um, you, and I think it was somebody from municipal uh, municipalities, Newfoundland, talking, and that this is a good thing, and I'm certain that there probably is good things about it. What my concern is that, like, when we have federal and, and provincial governments, they we have opposition who can get up at question period and question and ask questions and get answers for it. And, um, but when we, you know, uh, they can hold them accountable, right? They And the same thing, there's all kinds of organizations like human rights environmentalists who are watching what governments do and they have you know the resources they have the knowledge they can go out and if our rights are being infringed on or if they see something that's not being a good practice they can bring it to the media they can lobby government Mm -hmm. but at the municipal level we don't have the same thing we have uh, in a small town seven people who are elected and you know they may or may not understand what their role is. They may or may not understand the the act. 
So if, as a resident, we find ourselves in a situation where we feel that our best interests aren't being looked after or that they're not following their own rules and regulations that they're free to to make, does this new act provide any uh, way that we can hold them accountable to, you know? A fair question. Not really, I guess would be the short answer here. If and when we have dysfunctional councils or concerns with council finances, and there's a community dealing with that right now, it's going under a, an audit. So other than the uh, opportunity to vote them out the next go-around, there's not really an accountability mechanism that's not already been there, such as uh, getting municipal affairs, the Department of Municipal Affairs, to be involved in any council concerns that people have. Because there's lots of opportunities for that to happen, and we've seen it happen many times over the years where the department does get involved. Maybe sometimes they're too slow to get involved. But Mm -hmm. off the top of my head, and I've read as much as I could of the document, Mm -hmm. it's pretty thick. I mean, it's 146 pages back and front, so that's an awful lot of reading to do. And some of it is a little bit mundane, but nothing jumps into my mind that's a new mechanism of accountability. No. Yes. And and I, I have some experience because I am in a situation where I have been dealing with a council, and I have contacted municipal affairs, but... To my mind, what I'm seeing, that it all, in the end, it all boils down to if you're not happy, like you say, you can vote vote against it, but you're just one person voting. and uh, Or you take it to court, which costs, you know, piles and piles of money, which is beyond the means of, of ordinary people. There's also, the, for some things, there's this appeal process. But it seems to me that they can do basically whatever they want there's nobody supervising municipal affairs is not looking to see if their rules and regulations uh, meet the act it's just there and if a person uh, a resident has a concern they can take it to the council but in my experience that they if the council just wants to ignore your concern and not respond at all or not discuss it in an open meeting uh, it, they they can do that and you have no recourse to, to say, well, you know, uh, this is uh, this is not the way it should be handled, right? So, yeah. What would that mechanism look like? I'm trying to think as you're speaking about what that could be, what that role would be, like an ombudsman or something for each municipality, which of course is probably never going to happen. But mm-hmm. what specifically would you suggest? I I don't know. I just know that giving them more power and not and there being no way that they're accountable, they can, you know, if they um, make a motion, they don't follow through on the motion, and you question it, they just can rescind it, even though, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Like, we're just left out there with with, uh, who knows what they could could do, right? It's like you were saying yesterday that the municipal councils have a lot of... uh, you know, are, are the first line, right? And and they affect our lives greatly. And you have all these volunteers, like I said, that, that aren't, they do get some training from municipal affairs, but sometimes they don't understand what their role is and, and what they can do. They're relying on advice from maybe a town manager or a town clerk. And we don't always know if, if the advice they're getting is 
in line with the the act or in line with the spirit of the act and and in line with best practices so what what do we do we just like you know we're just left there with no no recourse nobody to represent it, us and nowhere to, to go fair points you know when it comes to training you know people have suggested over the years that in an effort to understand procedure and to understand policy and how the act is written and how you're supposed to interpret it. You know, if you mandate the training, maybe, just maybe, that would hurt the uh, the cause of trying to encourage candidates to even come forward. I mean, there's some councils uh, in the province that don't even have enough people to fill all the chairs. So, but I do think training would be important. Uh, an understanding of procedure and the interpretation of the act that govern municipalities, mm-hmm. unless you have that in place, there's going to be a lot of chasing of tails, a lot of missteps and sidesteps being taken. So... I'd be leaning mm-hmm. towards mandatory training, but I completely understand how that would maybe put some people off. Say, I don't have time for that. I just want to get in and do the best I can. I know, but but when uh, I've heard that over and over, I'm just a volunteer. I'm just a volunteer. Okay, but but if when you take that step to volunteer, you have a responsibility to do a good job. Okay, you can't just fall back on I'm just a volunteer. I'm just a volunteer, and and there there are some uh, good things in the uh, I think it's a municipalities handbook uh, about best practices and what to do. And if someone wants to wants to find information and and read it and do a good job, I think uh, the training that they get, I, I I'm not I don't know what that training is because. This, this, um, they do it online, and, and that's not available to just the general public. But the municipality's handbook is online, and you can look, and there's lots of good stuff in there. But there's nothing that says they have to follow best practices. There's nothing that um, says that uh, if you don't, you know, if you make motions and you don't follow through on them and you don't rescind them, uh, you can just months later when somebody brings it forward as a resident, you can just say, oh, we're going to rescind that now so we don't mm-hmm. have to do it. Right. Like there's no there, there's nothing to, that there's nowhere you can go. They just say, oops, we just. You know that was a mistake. Uh, we just missed that. Like, but those things are affecting our lives. Of course. So, or even yeah. worse, they just ignore you. Uh, yes, and and that is, that has indeed happened. Just ignore and, and not give answers, and and so you, then you're left living in your town, uh, feeling alienated, right? Because you're not getting any answers. Uh, is almost like a an harassment, right? You don't you you put forward answers, you don't get any back. You're just put off. You ask to speak at a publicly at a meeting to make your concerns known. You're refused the opportunity, right? So, so here you are. You just beat down until uh, you give up. You, you yeah, you give up and. Yeah. And it's not right. There, there got to be something somewhere. You have all these experts. There got to be something somewhere they can put in place where a person can go and say, "Okay, look, this is what happened. Right. What's happening is, you know." And I think the our uh, MHAs before they vote for for this, they got to think about that. You got people in a community who are making decisions that affects people's lives 
That and is- are they qualified to go out there with all this power on their own with nobody? Municipal affairs um, was said to me, we don't police them. Right. We, you know, they make their rules and regulations. They, they will, uh, uh, you know, maybe talk to them. But it seems to me like in the end is is back on the council. If they don't right. do and until things explode and, and it gets so out of hand that either the whole council resigns or the town is just in such an uproar, uh, we're just put off and told, you know, until you give up. Point taken, Jackie. I appreciate the time. Thank you. And, uh, and and I hope the yeah. MHAs are listening uh, and that they they look and see if there's something that can be done before they stand up and vote or whatever they do for for, uh, for this. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, we're out of, uh, out of time. Good show today. Uh, tune in. What does it start? One o'clock, Dave? Yeah, one o'clock is the... VOCM Radiothon, try to raise some funds and awareness for Kids Eat Smart, so please do indeed tune in and donate if you have the capacity. And we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.